Archie. It's the Airline Pilot Guy. Airline Pilot Guy, episode 320. Yeah, he's up in the sky. It's the Airline Pilot Guy. Hello, you're listening to the Airline Pilot Guy show. The view from our side of the cockpit door. I'm Captain Jeff, your host, broadcasting live from Studio 1A in the APG Headquarters building in Roswell, Georgia. Today's show was recorded on the 19th of April, 2018. In today's episode, Snapchat Pilot Fired. Raptor with skid marks, and a Southwest flight has engine issues. More news, your feedback, and this week's plane tale, the Sir Glenn Torpy interview, part three. So get all settled in, tray tables and seatbacks in their upright and locked positions, electronic devices powered on. Flight 320 is ready for pushback. Hello, everyone, and welcome to the Airline Pilot Guy Show. It is an aviation podcast. And joining me today, oh, first I should tell you that I'm a captain for a major U.S. legacy carrier. And now, joining me from her beautiful doctor? lakeside cottage doctor? in South Carolina, doctor? Doctor? a doctor, doctor? skydiver, doctor? marathon doctor? runner, strength doctor? training junkie, doctor? IPA connoisseur, and commercial multi-engine instrument rated pilot, Dr. Steph. Hey, that's me. Hi, Captain Jeff. Good to see you. Hi. Great Glad to, to see be you. Uh, back with you guys for a, another wonderful installment of this fine show. Um, I feel like I should apologize in advance for the amount of pollen that's in the air. It's really irritating the back of my throat and I can hear it when I talk. So um, I'm not really feeling like allergic with it, but it's bothering, bothering me nonetheless. So, Well, great. I don't uh, hear any of that myself, so okay. you sound great. So, uh, And speaking of sounding great, wow. Here's this guy from his country estate outside of London, a professional photographer, former RAF, RAAF fighter pilot, current captain for an international airline based in London, Captain Nick. Hello there, Jeff. Great to be back on the show from a very, very warm United Kingdom this evening. Lovely day. Excellent. Glad to see you, sir. And last but not least... From the tropical paradise of the Cayman Islands, barbecue master, bourbon connoisseur, motorcycle riding pilot for a major U.S. legacy carrier, soon to be Captain Dana. Hello, everybody. Great to be joining you remotely today, a little bit remote, actually in the middle of an ocean in the actually uh, really the Caribbean, isn't it? So looking forward to a great show. I'll be here a little short for me today. And using my body to block some wind today. So look forward to um, another great show with you guys. Well, we're glad that you had an opportunity to join us this week, Dana. We knew you were going to be down there uh, vacationing and diving and having a great time. And uh, let's start off with you. Catch us up on what uh, you've been up to. Well, uh, I know everybody can't necessarily hear me the greatest today. I'm using my body. We've got a pretty stiff northwesterly wind, probably about... uh, 
gusting 15, 16 knots, close to 20 miles an hour. So if you hear a little uh, noise in the background, I'm doing my best to block it out. But I know uh, most listeners are listening and not viewing it, but behind me I've got the, a little tropical island with a lot of palm trees on it, enjoying some great sunshine. This week has been a great week of uh, scuba diving. Had a little bit of weather. Uh, Captain uh, Nick over there is getting the uh, the advance of it with some nice weather. We uh, we sent that all the way from the Caymans, just for you, Captain Nick. You're so and, uh, kind. The, the I I had a funny feeling that mainland Europe was responsible for that, but obviously not. I shall I shall tell the Met men. I think it's a lack of well, fish urine is what uh, is causing that wonderful <laughs> weather you're you're having. Well, there. you should say that. Oh, I saw okay. plenty of fish poo. And next time anybody gets on the sand, of course, I've never mentioned this before, but do you know where sand comes from? It is indeed fish poo. So um, <laughs> okay. now, you, now you know the name. And, 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 and I've never videotaped it because I've always respected the, the privacy of the fish. But uh, they chew on specifically, uh, real specific is parrotfish. They love to chew on coral. And next thing you know, you have a cloud of IFR conditions right in front of you. And that's because <laughs> the, the parrotfish saw you, looked at you, and said, Here, poo, poo, poo. Here's some sand for you. So, um, have had a fantastic week of diving. I'm not going to be able to join everybody for the entire show today because, well, I've got some uh, more fun and games and trouble to get into here on this wonderful island, Grand Cayman. One of my favorites, it's actually a former British colony, uh, and or is a British colony. I don't quite know, uh, Nick, maybe you do, but certainly a British influence here at uh, in Grand Cayman. I think it's probably uh, independent now, Dana, otherwise you wouldn't have been let in. <laughs> Ouch. Yes, because I know you, you have... Uh, Interpol over there in England uh, looking for me, so yeah, probably never would have been let in. But you know, certainly, uh, certainly uh, a great opportunity. My, of course, my last uh, real big time to have uh, off before I go uh, through training, which I'm not even going to talk about because I don't want to put myself in a bad mood. So we're not going to go there. Um, but uh, things, things down here in the Cayman Islands are wonderful. Um, other than the there's a big storm that came across the United States this past week, uh, all the way up from the, the Maritimes, uh, this cold front stretched all the way down into the uh, Central America area, Honduras and Costa Rica, and it, it affected the weather here in, in the Cayman. So if watching the weather chart, it was a massive cold front, caused a lot of wind issues here, and uh, the, uh, they had to postpone scuba diving for us. Fortunately, uh, Cayman is a, a great island that you can move to different uh, parts of the island. We were on the leeward side uh, via a bus and still got to do uh, at least uh, boat dives. So having a great time down here. I appreciate time to come on and, and say hello to everybody because I, of course, miss uh, the community as always and miss my friends Nick, Captain Nick, Captain Jeff, and Captain Steph, all of, uh, all of you I miss very dearly. Did you say captain? Captain. 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 Captain.
I do have one more thing to add. And yes. It was so funny because, you know, the, the resort that we stay at for diving is right on, right on uh, coral. So they, you know, limestone coral. So the boat has to make a very uh, delicate approach to a cutout inside the coral and coral on both sides and in front. And if it's choppy at all, it's, uh, it can be quite interesting. Well, this uh, particular boat captain took five tries to get it into the slip. So every time he kept on coming back around, there was this little tune going through my head. I'm not going to sing it, but we all know that what that tune is. But that's uh, my, my APG experience of the week is watching this poor captain with about, about 35, maybe 40 people watching him trying to uh, put this boat in blip. Yeah. There you go. So it even applies to boat. <laughs> it, it applies for so many things, actually. I was, yes. It, it can, Life advice, I was, really. I, I was indeed sitting there chuckling with that song going through my head, thinking, okay, here I am in the Cayman Islands watching a boat captain go around. <laughs> Back to you, and Jeff. Back did you to start, the studio. Did, did you uh, start singing it out loud? I actually... Honestly, I did. <laughs> and everybody's looking at me like, what's going on? I, I, you can't always go. So the, people, the people are like, Watch that guy over there. What you, what's going on here? I said, well, you know, it's I do this podcast with a great group of people that, you know, of course, the listeners out there, and we we know this tune, and that, that you know, kind of explained the whole whole thing out loud to them. And it was just, it was, everybody's looking at me like I'm kind of weird, but that's okay. I was, uh, I had the hat on the whole week. Uh, and all right. So I guess we'll talk about this one other thing, the hair hat, which most of you, uh, may or may have not seen, but I actually have a bandana that I wear when I'm scuba diving. That's a hair hat. So, um, yeah, you can <laughs> always it. find me under the water as well. So yeah, all types of good stuff going on. That's awesome. Anyways, I, I hand it back to you guys. Thank you for the opportunity come on hello today and uh uh looking forward to staying on with you guys a little while longer i'll just be listening and uh, so you don't get all the background noise and i want looking really looking forward to hearing what and feel, Dr. feel free uh feel free if you feel like you need to add something okay yeah absolutely i'll be listening well sound all right good. all right excellent cheers dana good to see you. good to see you dana um let's see so uh nick let's uh go next with you and what you have been up to since the last show uh not a great deal uh all right we'll move on then to yep. oh i'm sorry still <laughs> still not working a whole lot and, uh, on vacation. Yeah. yeah still not flying uh keeping my uh, ear to the ground um in the meantime i'm actually uh setting up uh, a big room at the uh data data are you okay data have you fallen off the pier are you being blown away by the uh Gale force wind. It's a hurricane. <laughs> so, uh, yeah. You know what? I think I can do something about that. Hang on. <laughs> uh, we've got a nice big room. I got, it, I got it. I got it. I got it. It's all set. Sorry. <laughs> okay. All right. Are you okay. sure he's an airline pilot? <laughs> he's, um, they've flown together. Uh, yeah, I know. He yeah. seems to know what he's doing in the airplane. <laughs> I, I, I put him in my pocket. <laughs> okay. Right. Uh, there's a big room downstairs. I'm uh, setting up as a, uh, a studio and a workroom. Uh, so uh, in a few weeks, uh, I'll be able to do the show from down there. 
It'll look quite uh, snazzy, I think, when it's all done. But uh, we're currently ripping the place apart, pulling the carpet up and all that kind of stuff. So uh, being a busy boy. Excellent. Excellent. All right. Um, oh, did you have a, uh, a, a guest uh, join you today at your... Uh, oh, yeah. Uh, Nev was uh, down uh, just to the south of me in Portsmouth. And uh, as he was heading home, uh, we spotted him on social media and uh, invited him in for a uh, uh, drink. Unfortunately, part this uh, this lurid yellow um, banana in front of my house. Um, and I'm, I'm embarrassing. Really, yeah, I'm, the telephone just rang off the hook then from all the neighbors complaining <laughs> that there was some, some eyesore, tasteless vehicle outside of my house but you know it property was values you have to think about that <laughs> very true very true it was lovely to see that uh, we had him over for lunch and uh, and then put him on his way as quickly as we could um back in his yellow monster back up but uh, it was great to see i you love there. your car nev really nev i, I love you yeah. love your car just to yeah. clear. <laughs> a great car. Yeah. We we're just kidding around. Yeah. But it's fun to it's fun to tease Nev and you his bet. very bright yellow car. Uh, all right. Uh you know why that's so bright yellow or yellow orange or whatever you call it? It's so that uh, he can find it because he's getting kind of old. Yeah. And uh yeah. Yeah, the more you can easier. make him stand out, it's just <laughs> Yeah. Although yeah. he he claims In so many people, ways that's true stuff. People still try and drive into him. I said <laughs> Not that they don't see you, it's they hate the color. <laughs> Always uh, striving to make it stand out better. That's enough. <laughs> oh, that is harsh. Sorry. Uh, sorry. <laughs> We're having fun at his expense. Moving on. Uh, moving on. Moving on. Moving on. Family show, right? Uh, let's see if I can find that one. Yeah. Uh, family show, yes. ladies and gentlemen. Family show. I'm doing better today with those. Um, new setup works. Well, yeah. But Thanks. Uh, I had a great trip uh, this this week, uh, Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday trip. On Monday, I ended up going to Greensboro, North Carolina, and uh, I was going to try to meet up with one or both of the hosts of Opposing Bases podcast. Not that they're anywhere near that location, uh, but uh, they're in the state of North Carolina somewhere, I think. Anyway, uh, because of their schedules and mine, it just didn't work out, except that RH said that, uh, hey, guess what? I'll be flying on your flight early tomorrow morning to Atlanta. I guess he was heading up to Philadelphia for uh, some kind of a conference. And uh, so, yeah, we saw RH. And actually, you know, honestly, I kind of forgotten that he was going to uh, be at the airport meeting us or meeting me. And uh, I saw this guy walking toward us as we were walking toward the gate. And I'm thinking, Oh no, it's the FAA. It's an FAA. <laughs> I thought I was going to get a check ride. Young to be an FAA inspector. Cause that's one thing that I was quite taken aback when I saw his picture. I mean, he was a young looking man, but you know, I've seen man. some FAA guys that, that age. Um, anyway, maybe, yeah, perhaps that was, uh, should have been a, a flag. I should have known. But, uh, and then I, I quickly recovered from that and realized, oh, that's right. RH is going to be meeting me at the airport. And so I uh, got him to board early and uh, gave him the, the cockpit tour and uh, had a great time. And it was great seeing you, RH. I uh, got to see AG, what, a couple, well, last, actually the last trip in, uh, when we were in uh, Norfolk, Virginia. So uh, I've, I've met both of the uh, 
hosts of opposing bases. So next time you're on the approach, you're going to get like number one. You're going to get priority. You're going to get shortcuts on the taxiways. It's going to work for you. Only in one particular airport in the United States. <laughs> yeah. So this one airport that I was flying into, uh, I heard the story about um, a supposed Acme pilot that uh, flew a visual approach, but uh, ended up messing things up in the pattern because the controller thought that this said uh, airline pilot would, you know, turn his base pretty quickly after he claimed that he had the airport in sight and it was uh, cleared the visual approach. But this uh, Acme pilot continued uh, out to about a 20 mile final. <laughs> before. <laughs> what? I have no idea why he did that. But anyway, that kind of messed things up for this controller because, you know, there were other airplanes that he was trying to sequence and everything else. And uh, one way to get around that is just to say uh, you're cleared the visual turn a you know, base a beam, the marker or something like that, just to kind of give some, some uh, restrictions or whatever. Anyway, uh, that became known as the, well, let's see, how do I put this? The Acme final visual or Acme visual, I think. Acme so, visual. When I, so I came in, uh, Brent was, uh, I was flying the airplane, but Brent was um, on the radios and I said, Hey, do you mind if I make a radio call here? And he goes, yeah, sure. Go ahead. And so I, I said, airports in sight. And he goes, clear the visual. And I said, uh, can we get the Acme visual? <laughs> and the guy <laughs> chuckled a little bit. And uh, he goes, uh, yeah. And, and I said, uh, well, do you, do you know what I'm talking about? And he said, I think so, but I'm not sure. And so I, I explained the whole thing. And he goes, yeah, I thought that's what, what you might be alluding to. And I said, <laughs> don't worry. I'm not really going to do the Acme visual. And uh, so we had yeah. a nice little chuckle I, I on the radio. <laughs> so anyway, um, it was a nice, quiet uh, layover in Greensboro. Um, my daughter is not too far from there, and she uh, was kind of busy with tests and stuff like that. So uh, I took a pass on going, driving over there to the school to bother her. I didn't want her to feel like, you know, she had to see her dad, even though I'm paying for everything. Um, no, I'm just kidding. Well, not, I'm not <laughs> kidding, actually. Um, but I get to see her next week. Uh, let's see. So going from Greensboro early on that flight with RH, uh, to Atlanta, and then we uh, continued on to Newark. And, uh, as I was going through security, I was walking up and I see this guy, uh, standing there and he's holding, um, a tablet like the, you know, you've seen the, um, uh, the dry limo drivers and stuff at the airport and they have the, uh, yeah. the little iPads or windows tablets, uh, or what Android tablets with uh, your name on it or somebody's mm -hmm. name. Well, this guy was holding, um, and I looked at it and I thought, well, that looks familiar. And it was the uh, big logo, my uh, airline pilot guy logo on it. I'm going, at first I'm thinking, oh, it's the uh, Golden Touch limo service coming to pick us up. And I'm thinking, oh, wait a minute. They wouldn't know that I do a podcast called the airline pilot guy. <laughs> and then I looked up at him and I'm going, hey, this guy kind of looks familiar to me. And I noticed he was wearing one of those bright yellow fluorescent high green, vis. whatever. Yeah. High vis uh, coats. And I went, I bet this is Paul De Silva. <laughs> and it was, Hey Paul, I had no idea. Didn't even think of uh, even letting him know I was going to be going through Newark because, you know, it was only going to be a short period of time. So I got a chance to meet with him for a few minutes and uh, catch up with him. So uh, that was great. Paul meeting you in person. And I told him to continue to Excellent. send us yeah, some great I, I uh, audio feedback. Go. What a lovely guy. Yes, very much so. And then we uh, eventually made it to Manhattan. We had to wait for like 45 minutes before our wonderful limo service finally got there. 
but we uh, made it to uh, downtown Man- or in Manhattan, um, 45th and Madison at the Roosevelt Hotel, and we had a New York City meetup planned. And I, after some technical problems, I was telling Nick before we started recording what I did. So I, I have my handy put, Zoom H6 or H5 with me. Technical problems. Well, it was a technical problem with my brain. <laughs> I think it's a medical so, problem. It never happens. It might be a medical. <laughs> that's technical. That's technology and medicine. So I had my H5 with me and uh, and my microphone, ATR2100, and I'm all set. And uh, so I pull that thing out and put it all together, and I, I notice that there's a red light in the Zoom, and I can hear myself in the in the earbuds. I'm thinking, oh, this is sound, sounding great. So we started to do our round around the table and uh, finished with that. Oh, it was awesome. The things that were said were just amazing. And then I looked down and I thought, okay, I'm going to hit the thing to stop the recording. Oh, that that light's not on. Oh, why, why, why is it not recording? And then I remembered that I never put the SD card, the memory card back into it. It's right over here um, in this computer that's on my desk at home. I went, oh, so how did you uh, think that that went everybody? Let's do that. That was a rehearsal. And I thought, no problem, I'll take my ATR2100 and uh, with my USB cable, I'll connect it to my iPhone. It'll sound almost as good. And then I realized I didn't have a USB cable with the (laughs) adapter on it. So I went, okay, forget the nice microphone thing. And uh, we're just going to use the iPhone just by itself, a la natural. So that's what we did. And this is what we captured from that. AI rescue. Hello, ladies and gentlemen. We are here at Stout, New York City, near Grand Central Station. This is take two. Uh, I just went around the table here with a bunch of just very, very wonderful people and very patient, understanding people, because uh, I just realized that uh, the Zoom H5 that I use to record everything uh, doesn't have a card in it, so... We're going to try this again, this time with the iPhone, and uh, if it doesn't turn out very well, well, you should have been there the first time, because these people have just wonderful things to say. We'll start with uh, Dave Abbey. Hey, hello, everyone in the APG community. It's Dave, and had a great meetup. Jeff, thanks for coming out. Thanks for all you do, and uh, just great hanging out with uh, a bunch of New York City Av geeks and Jeff, uh, telling us all about the stories of how thorough of a walk around he does every single time on the Mad Dog. Yes, that's true. Hey, Roger here. This is great, especially since we didn't have our meetup last week because a certain British pilot who shall not be named wimped out, but Jeff was here and this was terrific and what a great bunch of people. Awesome. Thank you, Roger. Now we're going to move over here. I'm going to I'm going to run around the table so I can get closer to Tracy. Hello, APG friends and family. This is Tracy. This is my first meetup and I had a wonderful time. Thank you, Captain Jeff. Short and sweet. Thank you. Hey, APG community. Jonathan Alexandrados here. I'm extremely grateful to Captain Jeff for letting him, me use him as my personal therapist as I try to get over my fear of flying. But I'm leaving here more terrified than ever. Help! <laughs> Sorry. Hello, Captain Jeff. I'm glad to be here with Tanya, who brought me here. With, for this meetup, I'm glad to have met you. Good to see you again. Hello, wonderful APG crew and fabulous APG community. This is Tanya, otherwise known as Tanya W. in the chat. 
And we've just ha been having a ball tonight, just chatting, getting to know each other much better. It was great to spend more time with Captain Jeff. And uh, just, I, I am going to be sending in an audio feedback very soon. And until then, au revoir. All right. Grand time. I'm sorry I had to put everybody through another another recording, but uh, anyway, it was worth it. We had a great time, and uh, that's it. So back to you, Jeff, in the studio. Thank you, Jeff. Got the handoff. Um, so uh, it, did you notice my voice was a little uh, hoarse? Just a little. Yeah, it was noisy in there, and uh, and as uh, Tanya said in the chat room, hi Tanya. Um, the uh, that was at the end of our uh, meetup, and uh, you know, several uh, drinks and later, and a lot of uh, talking. It was uh, it took its toll on my voice, but it was a great time. Really enjoyed it, and everybody was disappointed that uh, Nick couldn't make it last week. But I told him at least that's what they, they said. That's what they yeah, said. Yeah, a little horse to be is nice. called a pony, by the way. Pardon me? A little horse is called a pony. Okay, so what would you say then? Um, how about <laughs> if I spell it, H-O-A-R-S-E. Did I spell that right? H-O-A-R-S, horse, E? Oh, anyway. Uh, let's see. We also have uh, just another mention. We talked about it on the last show. Um, a meetup uh, down under, in, uh, wings over Illawarra. On the 6th of May, or 5th of May, I'm sorry, we, I, still, I still have 6th here. I should probably correct that so I don't make that mistake again. Um, and uh, let's see, Matt uh, Bunting Frame is going to be down there, and he said, meet up at 10 a.m. on Saturday, the 5th of May, wear your APG or PTUK t-shirt for a group photo. So make sure if you're down that way that you uh, show up there at the broadcast tower at 10 a.m. And uh, today, I don't know, you're, if you're listening to the audio, obviously you can't see my, my hair. Perfectly quaffed. Yes, because my wonderful barber um, did a wonderful job of, uh, I told him not to cut it so short this time. He really cut it short last time. And uh, I know that he was um, going to make a trip to somewhere in Colorado, and I asked him how that was going, or how that went. And he said, oh, I, it, was, it was great, and I also got a really great deal of, uh, up to uh, New York and uh, went up there. And then on the way back, he said they were, he was in the gatehouse up there uh, at LaGuardia and they made an announcement and they said they'd pay $50 to anybody who would sing on the public address system there at the gatehouse. And uh, he said, I'll do that. And so he walked up and he, and he sang a song for $50. And I said, did they pay you $50? And he said, yes, they did. And uh, so I said, how would I find that? And he told me how to find his, his video on YouTube. And I said, you know what? And he didn't even know I, I did a podcast. I said, you're going to be on a show today because we're recording today. I'm going to play you singing at the LaGuardia Airport. And uh, he said, yeah, look for Yakov International Singer. So sure enough, here it is. We do have an international singer here, ladies and gentlemen. International singer. I have Yakov. Please give a round of applause for Yakov. Now, Yakov, I'm, I'm pausing it for a moment, is uh, from Russia, and he's uh, a Jewish, uh, has a Jewish background. And so he said that the, uh, the, the song that he sings is not in English, but in Yiddish, I think. 
we do have an international singer here, ladies and gentlemen. International singer. I have Jakob. Please give a round of applause for Jakob. I like some sing. I was 30 years play accordion and play and sing. And I want to sing for you. And everybody have to be clap. No, no, no. Oh, 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 Chakra chaki dangirat, zulforsh kami dangirat. Chakra chaki dangirat, zulforsh kami dangirat. Ahay ruhi janona, aram chaki dangirat. Meravi yo, meravi, khanda kunon meravi. Meravi yo, meravi, khanda kunon meravi. Khanda kunon chibosha, jilva kunon meravi. Khanda kunon chibosha, jilva kunon meravi. E chak chak, e chak chak. A little bit of hip-hop at the end, it sounded like, I don't know. Anyway, yes, that is my barber. I didn't realize he was so talented. That is brilliant. I love it. That sounds like to me. It sound what? It sounds like Yiddish to me. All right. That's what he said, I think. Uh, And I didn't realize he... I think so. I mean, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm of course, of the un-Gentile religion, and... <laughs> did, you, what, did you step on was somebody? What, what was that? <laughs> that was that was a rooster. I think he was being too. Uh, oh, that reminds <laughs> yeah, was, me. That that sounds that would sound that sounds like a Yiddish chant to me. Yeah, and I didn't realize he was so talented. He had played uh, accordion and sang for thirty years. I think is what he said at the very beginning. So anyway, I'll put a link to that uh, in the show notes so you can watch the video of him singing at the uh, LaGuardia Airport. So I thought that was pretty cool. Can you keep your cock quiet, please, Dana? Yo, know, this this is my big cock. You see, it's walking. See, oh boy, you guys can't see it, but I get a I get a huge, huge cock I'm facing. Family show. <laughs> yes, thank I'm you. Talking about the damn uh, rooster. Family show, ladies and gentlemen. Family show. Okay. <laughs> and what a beautiful cock it is. <laughs> <laughs> wow. Feel free to edit that. Out. Oh my! Oh my! Oh, I mean, he showed a, wow. he a picture of it. Wow. <laughs> really? Yeah. That's I'm glad I didn't see that picture. Instead of my, <laughs> my bow and I ain't going. That is gotta, <laughs> gotta replace that now, please. Okay, I'll have to I'll have to make sure I, I get a little Okay. Wow. Sorry. Oh, I think I'm turning Sorry. red. I, I think I did. <laughs> About ten shades. <laughs> so how many times have we longed to hear that for out of stuff's mouth. All right, here we go. Uh, moving on, moving on. Uh, so that was uh, that was today. I learned of my barber's special uh, special talent. And uh, so, if you're watching uh, uh, Jack, or he goes by Jack at the uh, Jack's Jack and Sons Barbershop in Alpharetta, Georgia. Excellent. Shame you couldn't cut your hair. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> Okay, let's see. Anything else that we should talk about before we move on with the uh, coffee event? I haven't told you what I did last weekend. Oh, my goodness. I, you just, know what? But that's oh, fine. Three. Moving on. Oh, you know what I did? Normally, I, you, you go earlier, and I thought, I'm going to wait to do yours because you're, you have amazing news about what you just did and accomplished this past week. So I'm so sorry, Steph. So please, before further ado... Please tell us what has anything been happening in your life since we Nothing. last recorded? 
Okay, yeah. let's move on then. So actually going oh. back to last week, Thursday, before the weekend stuff that we're going to get into, um, you've heard of that guy, Captain Cool, who sends us feedback and stuff yeah. occasionally? Bill Bill Cool or William Bill, Cool. Bill cool. Yep, he had yeah, a uh, he is a uh, pilot for a regional airline and had a layover here in Charlotte. So we were able to get together and have a little mini meetup and some sushi and beers. Um, did not manage to record any audio, so <laughs> Meh. but we had a great time. Yeah. Lots of good conversation, aviation talk, the usual. So my thanks to Captain Cool for um, <sighs> spending a little bit of time of his layover with me. So it was very nice. Um, but anyway, um, we kind of called it an early evening because he had to get up early for his flight. And I had a busy day on Friday because not only did I work all day, um, but I had to travel up to Boston in the afternoon, um, evening. I think we got, got in pretty late, actually, kind of like 11 p.m., 10 p.m. Um, but I was I was there for the 122nd installment of the Boston Marathon. So um I ran with a charity. Um, most people actually time qualified to get into the the race, but um, I had a couple of friends running this year and really wanted to join them for that and had a wonderful, um, was able to make a wonderful donation to a very worthy cause in the town of Hopkinton. Am I saying it right, Dana? You can continue to correct me. Looks like Hopkinton to me, but whatever. Um, so anyway, that was um, how I ended up there and really put in a lot of uh, training and Hopkinton. Hopkinton. Yeah. And did you did you Hopkinton. say Boston? You did right. Okay, good. Thanks. I did say, did Boston. say Boston. I said Boston. 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 I'm sorry. I love that song. <laughs> Go ahead. Yes. Um so up there for the the marathon, the 122nd um installment of the marathon and uh on uh, so I had a really, really, really good training uh, cycle leading up to this, starting kind of near the beginning of the year, getting ready for um, running a long race. Um, I didn't initially think it was going to be Boston. I'm actually signed up to run a marathon 10 days from today in Hamburg, Germany, which is what I was really training for. But then when the opportunity came up to uh, join in with the charity last minute, I I jumped on that. Um, went through a kind of a rough patch in March where actually February and March where I uh, had tendonitis in my foot and ankle in part because of that, I tripped on one of my long training runs and broke my finger um, back at the beginning of March. So it was a little bit of rough, rough going there, but came back from all of that. I have a wonderful physical therapist who I actually saw today. She's amazing. I am such a fan of physical therapy. They can get you through all kinds of injuries. And and when you're just kind of a menace to yourself, they can bring you back from that. Um, so got up there and you know, as you do before a, a big race, everyone starts kind of watching the weather about a week or two out and they're calling for just the worst weather imaginable for, for a race. You know, they were calling for maybe low fifties, but pouring rain, driving winds, headwinds the entire way. And everyone goes, ah, that's two weeks out. It's new England. There's no chance this forecast holds up. It's going to change. Well, it changed a little in that the, uh, actual temperature got colder so at the start, I think when I started, it was 38 degrees. Um, it rained the entire day. Um, I should say on Saturday, I, I ran the 5K and it was gorgeous conditions for running on Saturday. Um, kind of nice part, partial overcast skies and 50 something degrees. Um, but yeah, by the time we got to Monday, the weather forecast came true and it was 
torrential rains um, kind of kept coming through in waves, 30 plus mile an hour headwinds at times. There were gusts of probably closer to 40. There was one gust where I kind of got pushed, you know, several steps off to the side, off the course, because we weren't quite on the wind line there. Um, and, you know, everyone was going, gosh, what are we going to wear? Like, this is just really bizarre conditions for a marathon. Um, you know, normally you'd wear not a whole lot of, of clothing, something um, something light, something that's not going to weigh you down. Um, but it, it really was truly cold and windy and... <laughs> oh, thanks, Captain Nick. Oh, that's for you, Jeff. Um, I thought I was going to say he loves me, but no. Anyway. I know. I mean, it would seem to be an appropriate comment for him <laughs> to make on his scrolling yeah. machine there. So, But anyway, uh, apparently... You know, they were calling it the Boston Monsoonathon, um, which is which is <laughs> accurate. It was the most rain and wind I've ever experienced on any run ever, training race. Otherwise, it was it was pretty horrible. But apparently, those are my conditions um, because I set a new personal best time by over 13 minutes, broke the four hour mark in the marathon, and wow, I couldn't be couldn't be happier. So, so was that mainly because it was so miserable? You just wanted to, to be over as quickly as possible. You know, uh, that went through my mind a little bit, but I really felt well trained for the race. Um, I, I always run with my watch so I can check times and splits and things like that. But my hands were were frozen. Um, I had gloves on. I had a, a spare pair of gloves which I swapped out halfway through. Didn't really help too much. Um, you know, I had my fine motor movement in my my fingers was pretty worthless so being able to even just like get my hand and wrist out from under my poncho because i ran with a poncho the entire way uh that's so distracting nick <laughs> it really is <laughs> nick if, if you're listening to the audio has a has his little tablet uh scrolling information messages etc and she's but, but thank and you. the last one dr steph is amazing <laughs> and that's true but anyway usually i would you know just glance at my watch every once in a while to see and and um so the way this marathon works, it's it's not like most of the marathons I've run, which are um, basically circuits so that you end start and finish in the same place. In Boston, it's a point to point. So you start 26.2 miles outside of town and you run all the way back into town. Um, so they bus you out there and you have to go through this athlete's village um, to get to the start corrals. And usually it's kind of this nice grassy area with these tents set up and some food and um, you know all kinds of services. It was really just a big mud pit on Monday. Um, mm quicksand equivalent mud where you could probably step in it in places and sink into your up to your knees in mud um it's kind of hilly in some spots and people were kind of slipping and sliding and falling down into the mud before the race even started so it was pretty pretty gross um most people brought extra shoes to just discard and change into new shoes before the race started which is the first time i've ever seen that happening i did that it was worth it um and what else about it yeah so by the time so i was starting near the back of the pack with with the charity runners and um, normally they would, it's very organized because the roads aren't very wide and they have 30,000 people to get out on this course. So they, they put everyone into waves and corrals based on how fast their predicted finish time is. Uh, by the time they got to wave four, which was me, they weren't doing the corrals at all. They just wanted everyone out of athletes village so that you wouldn't get hypothermia. And they were just saying, go, just go. So I have no idea what time I even crossed the start line. I didn't look at my watch then. I didn't look at the time on the clock, which is out on the course. Um, so the only time I really glanced at it was about halfway through and it was a, it was a fast first half marathon for me. And I was a little worried that I went out too fast cause it's downhill through the beginning. Um, and it's really hard to control your speed there sometimes. And then the rest of the, the, the back half of the course has some, 
pretty decent hills that are kind of notorious, Heartbreak Hill and, and whatnot. Um, but yeah, it, it turned out to be a really good race for me. And that, and not only the hills, but also headwinds, right? Hills and headwinds and driving. I mean, just hmm. soaking torrential rains. It was raining. I, I, it's the, the amount of rain that was coming down. I don't know the, the rainfall rate, but it was pretty significant. And that would happen probably once every mile or so. You'd just get this 30 second to minute long, just bout of soaking torrential rains. So. I uh, was I was listening to something on the radio and they were talking about the race and they said a lot of the elite runners uh, either didn't run at all or, or I, I'm trying to remember exactly quite what they few, were saying. Quite a few didn't finish. Um, yeah. I think at least three of them ended up in the hospital and um, I think 80 runners overall ended up in the hospital mostly being treated for hypothermia. So yeah. there were definitely a lot of people off the course uh, in the medical tents. and So that would make me, as a, a runner like you, Steph, even feel more proud because, you know, you toughed it out. And well, uh, not only that, but you set a, set your own personal record. Yeah, I just, you know, there's a lot of things that have to come together for that to work correctly. And it was a good day for me and not a great day for other people. But I think anyone who really towed that start line deserves a huge uh, round of applause because... Even just to think about facing those conditions was pretty, pretty tough. That was the only time it was really terrible was thinking about getting out there in the first place. And then after the finish, having to walk back to my hotel, which is about three quarters of a mile away. That's where I kind of froze. So <laughs> I spent <laughs> probably half an hour in the shower in all my clothes still just trying uh, to get warm enough so that I could actually, you know, use my fingers to unzip clothing layers. <laughs> Steph, was there anything in those conditions that made you kind of grit your teeth and, and want to push harder than you would normally? You know, I, I, it's funny. I, once I was out there and running it, it didn't bother me so much. Like it, it mostly seemed comical, you know, every time you'd just get one of these huge gusts of wind or the, the rain would just start coming down in sheets and buckets. Uh, the crowd got louder every time that happened. And really, God bless the people of Boston. They were out wow. there. They were out there cheering. Probably half of them, more than half of them didn't even have someone to cheer on in the race. They were just out there because that's what you do on Patriots day in, in Massachusetts and, Marathon Monday, you wow. go cheer on the, the runners and the volunteers and the medical staff. Um, just phenomenal job by by all of them. It's really a testament to the the race they put on. Absolutely so. fantastic. Oh, and congratulations to you. You sound Thank like you. you did a brilliant job. Yeah. And Jeff has asked me before about that runner's high. Uh, if I've ever experienced that, I, I'm still on just this amazing high from that race. It was it was really incredible. And I don't even know the best way to describe it because yeah, the conditions were terrible. You know, it was a long time to be out there, not just during the race, but before and after and freezing conditions and rain and wind. And it was, I'm so happy about the whole thing. So brilliant. Wow. That's awesome. We're so proud of you. Steph. You. Hell of an achievement. Yeah. yeah. Appreciate it. I would have made it maybe a half a mile. So, and, and, you know, I know there were people out there who did not, it, the, the day did not end the way they imagined it. But, um, like I said, I think they all deserve a huge, uh, round of applause and congratulations for just attempting it so absolutely i don't think i've got round in my galoshes i saw yeah, a couple I've... people running barefoot oh what yeah oh well i knew zola bud was a great barefoot runner but not on streets yeah i, I just uh, you know i could see where if your shoes got really waterlogged and they didn't drain the water very well you might be tempted to but i think there were a couple people that just started and ran the whole thing barefoot wow 
Wow. They're made of stronger things than I am. So they have tougher feet on the bottom tougher, of their or skin on their bottom of their feet. <laughs> exactly. Yeah. Wow. So, so yeah, well, that's I mean, awesome. Yeah. And I, I feel great. I didn't really have any um, recovery issues. Um, I did go to see my physical therapist today, as I mentioned, because it's more of the prehab than the rehab at this point, which is important. So 10 more days and you're 10 more days and running again. Yep. In Hamburg. Brilliant. Well, well I, I hope it's as good for you there as it was in Boston. I hope so too. Um, yeah, I'm, I'm curious. To, it's always kind of an unknown going into a second race so close to a first one, how you're going to hold up even when you think you feel well. So, And what, what's the forecast for the weather for that race? Right now, I think it's uh, mid to low 50s Fahrenheit and intermittent rain showers. So, oh, so not quite so bad. Not, as, not uh, quite as bad. Boston. That sounds much more yeah. favorable. So. Yeah. Well, we'll be there, sort of, in, no, uh, in, spirit, <laughs> in spirit, cheering you on. <laughs> Thank you. I do appreciate all the support. It, it really means oh, a lot. Yeah, we, uh, we're we all so proud of you. All right. Excellent. Um, and then, as uh, we've mentioned a couple of times, hopefully it'll work out. Um, Steph and I should be together next week, a week from now, recording episode 321 before she heads off to the uh, airport to fly to Germany. All right. I think now is a good time, unless there's something else I forgot. No? Not that I okay. can think of. Let's do the coffee fund. Johnny, how much more coffee? No thanks. I love coffee. I love tea. I love the APG community. Coffee and tea and the Java and me. A cup, a cup, a cup, a cup, a cup. All right, the Java Jive, Jeff Smith, singing the uh, wonderful tune. That's our coffee fun, your way to support the show financially and uh, become part of the coffee fund cadre. Since the last show, Chris Randall sent his recurrent payment in via the coffee fund classic method, PayPal. The other way to do it is to become a patron of the show via patreon.com and since our last show, Eric Wallace, Sam Franklin, Matt, Lance, oh, never mind. He's no longer with us. Lance, thanks for all your support in the past. Sorry to see you leave. And uh, Alex Michaud. I'm not sure if I pronounced his name correctly or not. Looks like a French last name, and you know how I do with French names. Anyway, so thank you, uh, new producers, for becoming part of the Coffee Fund cadre. If you want to do the same, you have the resources available to you to do so, please head over to airlinepilotguy.com slash coffee, where you'll find information about how you can become part of the cadre and get those APG crew logs and other good stuff. And just feel good about yourself. Thanks again. Stand by for news. The FAA 
has put out an airworthiness directive. Uh, well, we're going to talk about a couple of airworthiness directives today on the show. This one regarding uh, limiting ETOPS on some of the Rolls-Royce powered 787s. Uh, the uh, new airworthiness directive uh, is expected as early as Tuesday that could severe, severely restrict flight operations on some of the uh, Rolls-Royce powered 787s. Expected to require inspections and a reduction in the ETOPS long range operation to 140 minutes from the nearest airport from 330 minutes, sources say. And that's that's a big deal. That's a huge restriction on the range, the ETOPS range for these airplanes. Uh, the inspections have to be made by May 20th, according to preliminary information. If the inspection fails, ETOPS may be reduced to 60, 60, one hour. Two airlines tell this uh, news source, the uh, Liam News, I believe, LNC, I'm not sure. Uh, a third source didn't have the numbers, but said the AD is expected to be onerous. Uh, so uh, the uh, EASA, the European Safety Agency, issued its AD uh, with a April 20th effective date. About 25% of the 787s are powered by Rolls-Royce engines, but not all of those engines are affected. Now, affected airlines and the Boeing sales force are calling, less, uh, calling lessors uh, scrambling for any available aircraft, regardless of, of equipment type, to cover the grounded aircraft or those anticipated to be grounded. Uh, so, you know, we know that there is um, uh, already, we know some people that uh, fly for, let's say, Acme Red, that uh, are, are kind of doing that, uh, finding uh, airplanes out there on the market that they can use to replace the Dreamliners that are affected by this Rolls-Royce engine issue. Yeah, that's right, Jeff. I mean, uh, it, it affects a number of airlines. Um, Acme Red uh, is one of them, and uh, we're bringing aircraft that we had previously um, put into mothballs back out uh, to uh, supplement the fleet so that uh, it doesn't affect us too bad. But uh, the main difference is I think you'll find uh, a lot of the operators will be moving aircraft around their route structure so that uh, they can put uh, fully ETOPS capable aircraft on those transatlantic routes that might be effective and move uh, the seven eights that are having a problem onto routes that go over land, basically. So uh, if you're a mainland uh, American-based airline, you might be using them on more internal flights. Uh, and uh, if you're on a European-based airline, you're going to turn them east instead of west uh, and head them off to uh, India, perhaps, or the Far East, where ETOPS is not a factor because ETOPS only applies. Uh, and for those who aren't in the know, uh, extended twin operations uh, only applies really when you're over an ocean and it allows a twin engine aircraft to uh, fly over a uh, large body of water where there are no diversion airfields safely. Um, and the limitations in time are a still air. Uh, flight time between uh, the aircraft and uh, the closest en route diversion should you lose one of your two engines. Uh, and obviously when um, they started pushing twin engine aircraft over big oceans, uh, it was always a concern what happens if you have an engine failure. And uh, you have to go through quite a rigorous um, proving system to get an ETOPS qualification. And that qualification uh, increases in time, depending upon uh, the standard of aircraft and airline. 
So the minimum is like 60 minutes. So you always have to be within 60 minutes of a diversion. But that can go out to quite a large figure. It can go out to over 240 minutes uh, if you need it to. Now, obviously, the um, the Rolls-Royce 78 Powers 787s have been having engine problems. And uh, it seems now that they've uh, the regulators have finally stepped in and thought, well, enough is enough. We're going to limit your ETOPS. 140 minutes is the figure I've heard. Um, so we are talking uh, two hours, 20 minutes, which isn't too bad. But there are other regulations that are coming in uh, that involve the, the um, frequency of engine checks that need to be done, full engine checks uh, on the ground by engineers, usually with boroscopes and other equipment to confirm the, the engine is serviceable. Um, that are also providing uh, a lot of delays for those aircraft. So as opposed to what Boeing hoped and uh, you know said that, that w- when the 787 would need one hang a day a month um, in, in its uh, life to keep it running is proving to be uh, something that uh, this is obviously something they didn't predict. And uh, Rolls-Royce obviously aren't... Uh, uh, I'm very happy with the situation. It could be quite, uh, it could be quite a problem for the company, both Rolls Royce and the airlines that offer uh, that operate. Sorry, those Rolls Royce equipped uh, uh, Dreamliners. You know, I have, I do have to say something. It, it it is ironic how how this story is unfolding because it really was the death of a uh, of an airliner. Uh, it, worldwide sales based on Rolls Royce before going back in history. And that is the L 1011 L 11 was almost completely decimated because of the RB 211 uh, engine and their failure to get that engine up and running in uh, it's delays. So Rolls Royce, I don't know. Uh, I don't know what's going with those folks over there in England, but uh, Rolls Royce is uh, not turning out to be a, a, a very good engine choice. Well, don't forget that it's actually quite a small percentage of uh, their engines, only those that are of a particular uh, power performance. Uh, and uh, the 78, um, uh, only um, about a quarter of the uh, 787s built are powered by Rolls Royce. Uh, um, so, yeah, I have to agree with you. Uh, it's, it's very bad for the engine manufacturer. Uh, and it's very unfortunate for those airlines that choose chose to have their uh, Dreamliners equipped with Rolls-Royce, but they are far from the only uh, engine manufacturer that's currently having problems, as we will discuss later. Yes, and uh, as you mentioned, Captain Nick, the uh, current issue applies only to the Trent 1000 Package C engine variant. So of that 25% of Rolls-Royce-powered 787s, it's only a, a subset of that number that are actually affected. However, um, I guess initially Boeing wasn't diverting engines from the production lines to airlines that already had aircraft in service. And uh, they were complaining to Boeing that, hey, you know, you need to fix our engines. We've, you, we've had the airplanes now for a while. We need to have engines that can work so we can make money with these airplanes. So. Yeah, it's a mess. Definitely a mess. Yeah, okay. it is. Uh, let's see. Moving on here. Remember, uh, on a previous episode, we talked about the uh, the Snapchat episode, the uh, couple of EasyJet pilots that uh, were using Snapchat while flying at 
30,000 feet or whatever in the air somewhere. Uh, the, uh, Why is jetty- it always 30,000 feet? It's I don't know. Just you like know what's, this- <laughs> what's funny about that stuff is that uh, before uh, RVSM airspace rules, it was impossible to be at 30,000 feet unless you were climbing or descending because uh, unless I guess there may be some special cases around the world where you could fly at that altitude. But uh, at least in the United States, 29, 31, 33, 35 were all the altitudes. So exactly. any even altitude above 29,000 feet, you couldn't be. It's, at just, unless it's just a nice round number for the media exactly. to report. But now it turns out <laughs> we, yeah. we cruise at 30,000 feet a lot. <laughs> so, yeah, now it actually fits. Um, anyway, the, uh, uh, the sun, uh, reported last month that captain Michael Castellucci and his co-pilot were caught on their phones playing with the app Snapchat while pl- flying a plane full of passengers at 30,000 feet. The image they took was posted on Mr. Castellucci's social media account titled dancing first officer and crews doing paperwork. Although he has since deleted his social media accounts. Hmm. The images captured neither pilot looking at the controls or out ahead through the plane window. <laughs> oh, no. Yeah, wait. <laughs> we're, we're not always constantly looking at the controls or looking out ahead through the plane window. I mean, we do do that, but uh, I don't think the problem here is that. And that's not re- the reason why he was fired. It was just that you were doing something that could distract you from uh, the normal duties of an airline and pilot I at think cruise they altitude. They do have policies against use of. Yeah, I think that's the mood of it. So I think HR got at them, uh, Steph, and you're the oh. expert. Um, no, no, uh, the, the, there's absolutely no indication or no suggestion that they were doing something unsafe. But what they were doing was contravening the social media policy of the airline. And because they've got such bad publicity, and I have no doubt that uh, – uh, the sun are going, oh, that's mildest. We're, we're a great story. But, I mean, in doing that, even though these guys weren't actually doing anything that was uh, considered by many to be unsafe, uh, they have lost their damn jobs. I mean, that's yeah. a serious thing in the airline industry. So I have to weigh the um, the effect of what they were doing and the repercussions on their careers and say, uh, is this fair? I don't know. Um, it, it shows to me a lack of judgment, and perhaps that's the reason why they, well, if they have a lack of judgment in this particular situation, perhaps that judgment, that poor judgment could lead to other problems and safety in the future. I don't know. You know, I, I don't know all the details here, but no, I think that, right, the, but you know, it was a clear lapse of judgment here to, I was, mean, it's one but, thing to, to do that, but to actually post it out there for thousands or even millions now to see that just is not using your head. No, I, I agree a hundred percent, but surely that just requires retraining. Yeah. After all, we can go in the simulator and occasionally you might, uh, might, uh, make a mistake during an approach. You might make, make a mistake handling an emergency or doing a procedure and your trainer goes, well, that wasn't very good. We're going to have to do that again so that you can pass your check, right? So you get retrained, you refly the procedure, you pass it the second time on your move. Um, there doesn't seem to be any of that here. They they made a mistake. They uh, they got allowed themselves to be distracted in the cruise when there was no danger, uh, and yet their mistake has not been treated in the same way that if you actually made a handling mistake in the simulator. 
well, which for me is much more serious. That's true for sure. But how do you how do you train somebody to have good judgment? And what you know, I don't know anything about what EasyJet's HR policies say, but if it says no use of phone taking pictures, posting things to social media, blah blah blah, and you're in violation of that, and that's something they consider you know a termination worthy occurrence, then I don't know how you, if you're EasyJet, don't follow through on that. Because yes, it, it is a retrainable thing, and no, it's not necessarily unsafe in that situation. But they have a policy in place for a reason, and unfortunately, because of the nature of social media, it just becomes a very public thing all of a sudden. And um, yeah, well, that, there I agree. That that's I suspect the nub of the policy is the fact that it brings the airline into disrepute. Right. Mm -hmm. Correct. So it's bad publicity for the airline. Uh, not because it endangered the aircraft or the passengers or anything else. Uh, uh, it was bad judgment, and as such, it required treatment from the, the company. It required some corrective measure. I personally don't think that sacking the guy, which is the ultimate, which is like, yeah. you know, it's the worst thing you can do to a bloke. You can't do much else to him in a company. You, you, you could possibly demote him. You could take away some money, you could retrain him, you could make him th go through a, an HR course to understand the ramifications of what he's doing, how it reflects on his professionalism, how it reflects on his ability to uh, do his duties fully. But it looks like here they just went for the chopping block straight away They and they fired the guy. And the first officer didn't even get that far. He decided to um, leave the company uh, before they got as far as blemishing his um, his uh, employment history by actually firing him. So, you know, I I I think you social media hones in sometimes like a um, uh, you know an absolute um, witch hunt, uh, like a lynch mob, mm -hmm. and they want the absolute maximum. They want everyone to be you know, locked away for life. They want people to receive the maximum possible penalty for something they see as an infringement. There's there's very little uh, levels of um, severity that, that occur, whereas I think the company uh, might have just shown a little bit of judgment here and said, we treat this very seriously. We've retrained the pilots and they won't be doing it again. But whether they actually needed to sack the guy I don't know. That that seems to be going straight for the worst possible uh, solution. Punish well. I see your point of view, but I say time to dump him. Wow, uh, that's pretty tough. <laughs> <laughs> no, I think you I'm can just... argue that one either way, and I, you know, I think I know, it's like I, you said, Nick. It's just... just not to keep going at this point, but it's just. Social media is the public thing, and you know the court of public opinion kind of weighed in on that one, probably for EasyJet as well. So, oh, for sure, and I think that's the reason they got fired, not because of anything else. Yeah, I think they could have done something pretty, pretty bad to the captain, uh, but uh, it was kind of extreme to to fire him. But I have a feeling it won't be the last time we hear. I'm sure he'll get some representation and perhaps uh, get some money from a lawsuit. I you don't never know. know. We'll see. And 
what you have all been waiting for. A, a big event happened on Tuesday. Center Southwest 1380, flight level 300 for 380. Tapa 1380, we are below. Tapa 
Okay, I'm going to let you drive until you tell me you want to turn base, okay? So uh, that'll be at least a 25-mile final. Longer than that, I'll have to do some coordination, but that'll be fine. We'll get that done for you. You let me know when you want to come in. Okay, 20 is good, and uh, we may need shorter here in a moment. Tell me the runway we're setting up for. We're going to set up for two. Say again. Southwest 1380, you'll be landing 27 left, 27 left today. And uh, you just let me know when you need to turn base. Uh, I, right now, I only have one person in front of you, which is a Southwest. I'm sure he'll pull off if you need to go right in. Southwest 1458, clear visual approach, 27 right. Keep your speed up. I'd like to get you on the ground before I have to turn her base. Up in that uh, speed up, clear visual, 27 right. Okay, center. Southwest 1380. 1380, got a 1458 on frequency. I just cleared him for the approach. Southwest 1380. I understand your emergency. Let me know when you want to go in. Yeah, we have a part of the aircraft missing, so we're going to need to slow down a bit. Southwest 1380, speed is your discretion. Maintain uh, any altitude above 3,000 feet, and you let me know when you want to turn base. All right. Down to 3,000. 210 on the speed. Absolutely. You just let me know anything. Southwest 1380, you'd like to turn, start turning inbound. Southwest 1380, turn, uh, just start turning southbound there. There's a Southwest 737 on a four-mile final. We'll be turning southbound. Start looking for the airport. It's off to your right and slightly behind you there. And uh, altitude is your discretion. Use caution for the uh, downtown area. Maintain, uh, advise you to maintain at or above 2,200 for the uh, MVA. Okay, could you have the uh, medical meet us there on the runway as well? We've got uh, injured passengers. Injured passengers, okay. And are you, is your airplane physically on fire? No, it's not on fire, but part of it's missing. They said there was a hole and, and uh, someone went out. Um, I'm sorry, you said there was a hole and somebody went out? Southwest 1380, it doesn't matter. We'll work it out there. Uh, so the airport's just off to your right. Report it in sight, please. In sight. Southwest 1380, airport's in sight. Southwest 1380, you're cleared visual approach 27 right. Contact the tower on 118.5. Southwest 13, I'm sorry, clear visual approach 27 left. 27 left and towers on 18.5. We're going on 27 left. Switch and tower. Good day. It's going to be a while for uh, 4666. Uh, there's an emergency inbound right now on the uh, north departures airspace. He's just got the uh, traffic stopped while he works him. It shouldn't be more than like five more minutes. Where's our airport 10? Airport 10, tower. Uh, sure, I'll we'll let you know when he's, the, uh, when he's on a five-mile file. Foxtrot 21, Tara. Foxtrot 21, uh, ETA probably about six, seven minutes. Stand by. The number one engine failure. And it's a Boeing 737, 149 souls on board and 21,000 pounds of fuel. Left turn heading all 180 and climb and maintain the 3000. The emergencies needs to come in right now. Okay, climb and 3000. Southwest uh, 1380. Landing on the uh, 27 right. Southwest 1380, you want to land 27 right? 27 left, I'm sorry. Southwest 1380, runway 27 left. Clear to land. Wind 28019, gust 2-5. Airport 10, there is a uh, hole in this side of the aircraft also. Copy. There's a hole inside of the aircraft. And Airport 10 is a short final. Is the next one alive? 
Yes, he is the next one to arrive on a uh, about a two mile final there. Sorry. Two ten, proceed on two seven left. Now, for 1380, right turn when you're able, you want to stop wherever you need to, it's fine. Thank you. We're going to stop right here by the uh, fire truck. Thanks, guys, for the help. Okay. A um, little bit more left in the audio there, and that was cobbled together by, well, several uh, folks tried to do that, various sources. Uh, but we have uh, somebody that did that for us, uh, starting from the uh, high altitude uh, center frequency. Uh, it was Nick. Uh, let's see. I, let me scroll back up here. Nicholas Collier uh, put all those together for us, starting with the uh, the center high frequency the center low frequency uh, apparently is not part of the uh, the uh, live ATC feed, and then it kind of skips through there. And then when they're um, on approach in Philadelphia, that's where the uh, communications were resumed. So a big thanks to Nicholas Collier for putting that together for us. And uh, so that kind of gives you a feel for what occurred. It was a Southwest Boeing 737-700 registration 772 Southwest or SW performing flight 1380 New York LaGuardia to Dallas Love in Texas with 143 passengers, five crew. They were climbing through flight level 320 out of New York when the left hand engine was damaged, causing inlet and parts of the cowl to separate from the airframe. Debris impacted the side of the fuselage, shattering a passenger window, causing the loss of cabin pressure. The crew initiated an emergency descent shut the engine down, diverted to Philadelphia, as we just heard. The aircraft landed safely on runway 27 left, vacated the runway, and stopped on the adjacent taxiway. The crew advised emergency services that their left-hand side was damaged and they had passengers with injuries inside the cabin. Emergency services foamed the left-hand engine and the passengers disembarked via stairs onto the taxiway and were taken to the terminal. Passengers reported a woman was nearly sucked out of the aircraft, was pulled back into the cabin by fellow passengers. And then we learned shortly after uh, this whole thing occurred that the woman uh, died from her injuries. Uh, in the second media briefing, uh, the NTSB reported one fan blade, number 13 of 24, was broken right at the hub and had separated. The preliminary examination revealed there is evidence of metal fatigue, fatigue right where the blade separated. There have been no engine fire. There's evidence of an engine fire. However, it's known that the it was an engine fire warning. It's possible and even likely that the fire wire activated when the fan blade separated. Uh, in the uh, this is the Aviation Herald um, description of the accident. Goes on to say the captain was a female, the first officer a male. I'm not sure why that was important, and they did an excellent job. The crew elected to land with the flaps at five degrees over controllability concerns. A piece of the engine cowling was found on the ground about 60 nautical miles northwest of Philadelphia. Uh, let's see, on April 18th, which is yesterday, the uh, third media briefing by the National Transportation Safety Board reported first data was available, or uh, first data is available from the flight data recorder. The left-hand engine parameters ran down to zero. Vibrations increased significantly. 
The cabin altitude alert sounded shortly afterwards. The aircraft made an uncommanded rapid roll to a left bank angle of 41 degrees. The crew decided to use flaps uh, 5 degrees for landing and landed at 165 knots indicated about 22 minutes after the left engine had failed. That was pretty quick, actually. Mm -hmm. The FAA was able to see some debris falling off the aircraft on their radar screens. They computed the approximate location taking winds into account, and they've uh, found additional pieces of engine cowling as a result of the uh, calculations. Uh, Let's see. The fatally injured passenger was seated in row 14. The window area is being looked at to determine how the window became shattered. Interviews with flight attendants and flight crew are ongoing. This was the uh, last seen media briefing. The NTSB has not been able to determine whether the blades of this particular engine were subject to an airworthiness directive a few years ago. Of course, this is um, yesterday's report from the Aviation Herald, so maybe some of this has changed. But uh, it looks like they do have the root part of the fan blade. And as uh, mentioned before, the fan blade cracked right at the entry into the hub and also fractured about halfway. Uh, the initiating event looks like to be uh, looks like a crack at the hub where fatigue occurred. Now, interestingly, uh, March last month, March twenty sixth, uh, the uh, EASA released an airworthiness directive, and it's effective April second. Uh, all occurrence was reported of a blade a blade failure on a CFM fifty six seven B engine, which is this engine type, by the way. The released fan blade was initially contained by the engine case, but there was a subsequent uncontained forward release of debris and separation of the inlet cowl. And I think they're referring to the uh, event in August of twenty sixteen. It was another Southwest Airlines seven thirty seven with the same type of engine, and we reported it on our show. We talked about it. They were going from New Orleans to. Uh, Orlando, I believe, and they had the same thing. Number one engine um, kind of exploded. The uh, fan, uh, one of the fan blades uh, cracked and was released and uh, took out the engine cowling. Uh, The fuselage was hit with debris. They did also have an emergency uh, descent and uh, 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 cabin depressurization in that event as well, and they diverted into Pensacola. Um, I think that most people would say that uh, the coverage of that uh, particular event was um, not as in-depth as this one, but that was the first time that something like this had happened, I guess, with that particular engine. And so because of that, I'm guessing the uh, IAZA AD was issued for operators with this particular uh, engine, the CFM 567B. Um, And we just have a last-minute update. The Federal Aviation Administration said late yesterday it will issue its airworthiness directive within the next two weeks, requiring fan blades of engines known as CFM-567B to be reviewed when they reach a certain number of takeoffs and landings. Blades that fail the inspection must then be replaced. And Southwest has already said that All of the CFM-567B engines on its Boeing 737 fleet will be reviewed within 30 days as the joint company that creates the machinery, a pairing of General Electric and Safran aircraft engines, announced it was sending 40 technicians to support the thousands of upcoming inspections. So as Nick kind of alluded to earlier, uh, Rolls-Royce is not the only one having issues with its engines. It looks like the... uh, 
the CFM, the General Electric uh, Saffron um, conglomerate, is uh, having issues with the CFM 56.7b. Um, let's see, what else did I want to say here? Good pictures here in the uh, Aviation Herald article, which I'll have a link to in the in the show notes. Basically, again, it looks identical to that incident that Southwest had in August of 2016. Uh, except this time, um, it was a little worse or a lot worse because they actually, uh, injured a passenger and the passenger has died. And by the way, I think it's worth noting that this is the very first time in its history that Southwest airlines has lost a passenger on in flight in in flight incident because of an in-flight incident. Yeah. Yeah. There was an instance, I think, uh, landing overrun in Birmingham, uh, Burbank, Oh, was it Midway? Okay. Mm-hmm. Uh, that there hit the a, uh, gas station in a... I don't think anyone... No, there was... That was that was a different incident. No one... Okay. There were no fatalities with that, but the uh, fatality incident was in Chicago Midway, overrun of the runway there, and there was a car that was impacted in the intersection in the street okay. just beyond the runway. And a six-year-old passed away. Okay. So clearly, um, you know, there's there's some kind of a maintenance issue here, or perhaps not a maintenance issue, but per, uh, a, a technical issue with the, the engine, the fan blades. Apparently, uh, I did a little research on this. Uh, I, I didn't know a lot about these engines and the fans and the fact that they kept referring to a dovetail fan blade. And I guess it's um, a new technology that many of the engine manufacturers now are using where they can, um, I guess in the past, Whenever there was a issue with a fan blade, they had to actually take the whole engine apart. It was completely taken out of service, and it was a long process, expensive process to replace fan blades. And it wasn't like you could re- replace an individual fan blade uh, on on site. And apparently, this dovetail design it now allows uh, the engine uh, fan blade that might be cracked or showing signs of fatigue can be replaced individually instead of replacing the entire 24 in this case uh, fan blades all at the same time so a lot less expensive and apparently the uh, the downtime for the engine is is much less however looks like uh, it's not without possible problems uh, and uh, also just a quick mention there was a 777 uh, united 777 that was going from san francisco to hawaii um, earlier this year, I believe, uh, that uh, had a an engine failure very similar to this one, where it took out the entire in- uh, the inlet cowling, and um, they didn't have any pieces hit the fuselage or at least puncture the fuselage. But uh, it was still a, a very major incident, and it was a Pratt and Whitney 4000 series engine. And again, uh, doing a little bit of research, I found that the uh, the fan blades and that one were like this, where they were the dovetail design where they could, um, you know, individually replace uh, or replace individual fan blades. So again, I don't know if that's part of the part of the problem or not. You know, I'm not a mechanic. I'm not a technician. So I, I don't know. But that's just something I thought I'd put out there. And another little piece of information that I think we should mention is that uh, two months ago uh, in February, there, uh, Chris Cheatwood uh, sent this to me. Uh, the uh, AMFA, I think the uh, the union, the Aircraft Mechanics Fraternal Association, the union representing the uh, t- uh, maintenance technicians at Southwest, uh, took a vote and uh, a vote of no confidence for the Southwest Airlines Vice President of Maintenance Operations, 
and they asked the Southwest CEO Gary Kelly and the COO Mike Vandeven to relieve this uh, person, Landon Nitschke, of his duties and responsibilities. And I'll put a link to this article in the uh, show notes. But basically, they say, we do not undertake a vote of no confidence lightly, as we have diligently attempted to get these issues resolved. And apparently, uh, there is a a culture and workplace of hostility, retaliation, and unethical behavior degrading the safety culture throughout the uh, Southwest maintenance system. So I thought that was an interesting, thank you, Chris, for, for uh, sending that uh, interesting little piece of information there. Um, not sure, again, if it has anything at all to do this with this particular uh, incident slash accident, uh, but uh, I just thought I'd throw that out there in the mix. Um, so uh, they, the crew did a great job, uh, as they're trained to do, uh, when you have a situation where you have a a rapid decompression and you have an engine failure simultaneously and they stayed cool, calm and collected, which is what we're, what we're expected to do as airline pilots. And, uh, they got the thing safely on the ground. They did a great job. Um, one of the things that I thought was interesting, did you see the videos of the, uh, uh people in the cabin when they With were their oxygen the, masks? Yeah. <laughs> So, so from, from memory, I'm pretty sure that the safety briefing goes something to the effect of, although we never anticipate a change in cabin pressure, should one occur, four oxygen masks will drop from the overhead uh, compartment. Pull down on the mask to fully extend the tubing and activate the flow of oxygen. Place the mask over your nose and mouth and secure with the elastic. What? Not just your nose mouth? Nose and mouth. Nose they and do, mouth. Yeah. It's both? Both. Huh. Both. Yeah. So, what, so uh, what happened in the photos of the the passengers on the? <laughs> well, almost flight? everyone that I saw. Now, maybe that's unfair, but all the ones that I see have the passengers with the that yellow cup on their mouths, yeah. not their noses. Not their nose. And I was, re- you know, they're designed to be roughly circular, but it's a, I guess it's a silicone type material that can be easily deformed so that you can put it over different, you know shapes people come in different shapes and sizes and you want to be able to match all of those and you want it to be something that can be used in any direction because if it's a stressful situation you don't want to have to be fumbling around with something to make sure it fits the right direction um, but yeah it's supposed to go over your nose and mouth so i was really cur- curious i'm thinking well maybe their safety card their safety safety guide has a picture of just the mask over the mouth but no no it, it shows the mask over the nose and mouth. Now, people, pay attention to the safety briefings, as Dr. Steph does, and I'm sure all the fine people that listen to the show. Listen to the, <laughs> look at the pictures. And that is verbatim from Southwest flight attendants. <laughs> I've flown Southwest many times. Many, many times, yes. That's what they say. So. Yeah. So, yeah. And, and then uh, that was one of the things that kind of caught my attention. And then... Uh, this might be appropriate time to play. But I, I like that some of them actually took to social media to document that occurrence. <laughs> while, while the yeah, we weren't the only ones. <laughs> we weren't the only we? ones to notice that. We're going, what? What are they doing? Why are they just putting it over their mouths? But uh, this might be a good time for this. Ooh, Jeff's pet peeves. All right. So uh, you'll remember the miracle on the Hudson, which occurred, what, nine years ago? 2000. 2009. Yeah. Was it 2009? Yeah. I think so. Yeah. yeah and uh, so we all know about Captain Sully Sullenberger and the other guy. Jeff Skiles. 
oh yeah, wait a minute. There was another guy there, right? Another uh-huh. pilot. Uh, so all this coverage on the media was focusing on the captain who did a wonderful job. But I kept going, well, what about, what about the first officer? What about the co-pilot? No mention of him. And I'm thinking, is he getting Jeff Skilesed? The only place I saw his name mentioned was from their official statement that they released through Southwest. So, yes, that's first the officer. first time I heard it as well. And I did a little research in on, on Facebook. Uh, members of his own family went out there to say, oh, hey, by the way, that that's my brother, uh, Lance Ellisor, tweeted a tribute to his pilot brother. I'd just like to point out that the hero pilot, Tammy Jo Schultz, was assisted by her first officer and my brother, Darren Ellisor. And I'm glad he's safe and that uh, almost all the lives were saved. I'm sad for the woman who didn't make it. So we'll have a we have a picture of uh, Darren uh, in the cockpit door uh, during uh, some of the aftermath of this whole thing. But I'm thinking I felt so sorry for him. I'm going, you know, we we talk about it all the time on the show. CRM, it's a crew effort. You know, we're not it's not just the captain and everybody else. You know, it's the captain's part of the team, you know, should be the leader of the team. And in this case, clearly, uh, Tammy Joe was the leader of this thing and she said we heard her on the on the radio transmissions very calm cool and collected and uh again you know it was um and i think i have a feeling i don't know this to be a fact but i have a feeling that she was seeing all this coverage and thinking to herself that some of this is a little bit misplaced and and they're putting maybe too much emphasis on me and then uh she and darren put out a a statement, as uh, Steph just mentioned, quote, as captain and first officer of the crew of five who worked to serve our customers aboard flight 1380 yesterday, we all feel we were simply doing our jobs. Our hearts are heavy. On behalf of the entire crew, we appreciate the outpouring of support from the public and our co-workers as we all reflect on one family's profound loss. And um, over and over again, even Sully did the same thing. He said, look, you know, don't make me a hero in this. We were doing our job. Uh, You hear that over and over and over again of all these situations. But in this case, it might be a little bit different, I think, because uh, the the prominent uh, person in this whole thing, on on the crew at least, the captain, uh, was a female. And I'm glad that we're, you know, we're seeing that uh, females are perfectly capable of doing the job of a pilot uh, and a captain uh, as anybody else. And we've mentioned that so many times on the show and everybody knows how we feel about it. Uh, that sometimes, I don't know, again, I, I kind of feel like maybe this is almost overdoing it and maybe counterproductive. Because um, don't we want to be, whether you're green, purple, black, white, yellow, or male or female, you know, whatever the junk is in your trunk, um, it doesn't matter. You know, we are we are all human beings. We're all capable of doing these kind of jobs. And shouldn't it be that yeah, you know, we make a note of the fact that this was a female that was a captain of this, but um, let's don't, I think it almost takes away from it. Again, I'm not a female, so I, you know, it's hard for me to say much more about that. Uh, but Steph, what do you think? Well, I mean, I can, you know, certainly I stay connected with um, some of the community of female pilots on social media and other things. And I think there's actually a lot of mixed feelings about it. Mm-hmm. You know, in one sense, there's been a couple articles in the, the media, media saying, you know, why are we surprised that it was a female right, we captain, shouldn't. we shouldn't be anymore. And and those are the, the articles that seem to be get, getting passed around the most in that community saying, yeah, it's about time people realize it's, you know, yeah, we're just pilots too. Um, you know, we don't need extra special attention when it's a female pilot that happens to do something that they're trained to do and executes 
successfully because that's their job. So Right. But, I was watching. Oh, go ahead. Uh, but, uh, you know, but on the other hand, it's, it's, it's funny to see some of the other stories about, you know, people who are, are pilots, female pilots who are professional pilots out there and how often they're uh, mistaken for flight attendants, uh, you, you know, just other cabin crew, um, perhaps hear comments from passengers who are part of the fly, flying public who are not well informed um, or hold certain prejudices. And those things still do exist. Um, so on the other hand, it's kind of nice to see that she is getting the recognition for a job well done. Um, but yeah, I don't, I don't think any of us think that it needs to be specifically stated separately. Oh, it's a female pilot that, you well, know. Again, and I, you, you can just say pilot. It's okay. Yeah. I don't know. It just, to me, it just seems almost overdoing it and over or counterproductive. Uh, for instance, here's a little clip from, uh, Fox News at Night with Shannon Bream with uh, Representative Martha McSally. We've gotten now uh, a bit of a statement from Southwest because this is story, obviously, the good and the bad of it has captured so many ha headlines saying this, as captain and first officer of the crew of five who worked to serve our customers aboard flight 1380 yesterday, we all feel we were simply doing our jobs. Our hearts are heavy on behalf of the entire crew. We appreciate the outpouring of support from the public and our coworkers as we all reflect on one family's profound loss. I know she's a person of deep faith too and has she talked is. about how that's helped her in flying and all that she's gone through. Yes, I was reading about that today and uh, I myself have done a lot of praying in cockpits. I and bet. when things go wrong, when you're in combat, when you're dealing with these emergencies, uh, there's no doubt that she was uh, literally praying without ceasing as she was doing her job yesterday. Uh, to save all those lives. And I know it's very humble for her to say that. And I know they have to go through the interviews and the investigations, mm -hmm. uh, but we want to honor her. So I'm introducing a resolution in Congress uh, to honor her and the crew for what they did yesterday, because we need to give honor where honor is due. Yeah, and she, like you said, very humble, uh, and has said she was just doing her job. But can you give us a sense of what it's like in that moment to figure out how to get a plane like this to the ground? Again, you go through lots of training so that in the moment that something happens, like this was just catastrophic failure, our understanding is the airplane uh, shifted 40 degrees to the left and started to descend because it was a pretty catastrophic uh, exchange. Obviously, sh uh, the shrapnel kind of came through uh, into the fuselage, into the window, and then what was going on with the decompression that's happening. You heard the radios as she started to descend. She had to quickly descend. Uh, we go through this whole process, maintain aircraft control, analyze the situation, take appropriate action. And then as we're prioritizing, it's aviate, navigate, communicate. Mm -hmm. And you saw the end of that is communicate, uh, you know, coolly and calmly what you need, what you're doing, where you're going, uh, so that you can get everybody safely on the ground. Yeah, and you say the, the three words there. My brother is a retired naval aviator, yeah. too, and he always... I, I think you're the calmest people on the planet because of all that you've been through. Um, thank you for joining us tonight for your service as oh, well. Oh, absolutely, absolutely. Thanks and we're so you. proud. We're so proud of Captain Schultz. And Representative Martha McSally there, the reason why she knows so much about this is that she was also a fighter pilot, I believe, in the Air Force. Um, and, uh, of course, it, it goes to, or it needs to be said that uh, Tammy Jo Schultz was uh, one of the first of uh, the initial cadre of uh, tactical fighter pilots in the U.S. Navy. And she, she uh, you know, went through many, many obstacles to get there. In fact, I think uh, she gave up on the Air Force and went through the Navy and was able to, to burst through. Uh, some of those uh, glass ceilings in the Navy and, and, you know, don't, you know, there's nothing to be taken away from that. Um, but uh, I think maybe the best uh, way to describe the way I feel about this is by a fellow uh, or another woman 
Beverly Weintraub, who has won a Pulitzer Prize as a member of the New York Daily News editorial board. She's a member of the 99s International Organization of Women Pilots and the board of directors of the Air Race Classic. And she uh, writes um, a, uh, what do you call it, an editorial, I guess, in the Wall Street Journal, which uh, we'll put in the show notes as well. Uh, but her point is, Sully was just a hero. Why label the Southwest captain a female pilot? Uh, so she goes on to talk about some of the things that Steph, you just mentioned, uh, consider these scenarios, the first of which happened to me, and this is Beverly talking the second to a friend and the third and fourth to women who have posted about the incidents on Facebook. The first thing the pilot who suggests that the woman with her plane parked nearby should take a pinch hitter course so she can learn to land it. The second one, the woman who taxis her plane up to the fuel pump and is greeted by a line guy blankly looking around and asking, Where's the pilot? The third one, the commercial pilot who goes to an aviation conference and is ignored by the airplane salesman passing out brochures to all the other male pilots in the crowd, though she may well be the most experienced flyer of the lot. And finally, the air transport pilot who is repeatedly mistaken for a flight attendant, or if she is recognized for what she is, has to listen to passengers grumble with an earshot and sometimes to her face that they don't like flying with a woman in the cockpit. Now, you know, we know all this is true, and I think that it's despicable. And I think you all know that. But again, I don't know, just this, this whole coverage, uh, I'm thinking there are so many instances, instances including the Southwest uh, incident that happened in August of 2016, uh, that w- was hardly even a, a mention on the news. Uh, there wasn't there, you know, there weren't uh, resolutions in Congress, uh, that kind of thing for the thing. They were doing their jobs of uh, flying an airplane single engine. That's why we go to the simulators every year or or more often to uh, learn how to uh, fly in these situations. And I really do laud this crew for their performance because uh, it was a it was a compound emergency. You know, not only did the engine fail, uh, they thought it was on fire initially, and they had the rapid decompression to go with it. Very, very stressful situation, and they did an awesome job. So please don't misunderstand what I'm trying to say here. It's just that that's just one of the things that I got from this whole thing, and I, I have a feeling that many women pilots out there would agree. You know, I think it's uh, I think it's something that we're going to see for many years to come anytime we have some of these similar situations, and I think it's just part of the way that the culture at least our culture has been for so long. And, uh, you know, like I said before, it's uh, kind of of two minds about all of it. Um, mm-hmm. But at the end of the day, I think most of us, you know, we just want to be pilots or doctors or runners or whatever. You don't have to specifically put that female label in front of it. So, right. That's well, all. Nick, you've been awfully quiet. I won't, to be fair, you guys have covered just about everything. Everything I was uh, would have talked about, and so anything I would say would merely be a repetition. Uh, a repetition. The only thing I would perhaps add is it was incredibly unfortunate that that one loose blade, uh, assuming that's what struck the window, uh, sadly found its way to a what appears to have been a slight weak point in the aircraft, and uh, as a result broke the window and caused the death of that passenger who was i might point out strapped in yes uh, it wasn't like she was sitting there not strapped in she was just in a dreadful position at the wrong time uh, i commend both pilots for their 
exceptional handling of the situation. Um, there is a great deal of publicity concerning this, not only because it's a death on board, um, but because of the very uh, good reasons you have all mentioned uh, uh, about the crew. But there are single-engine landings performed, I would say, almost every day somewhere around the world. This is a one that has uh, generated a huge amount of publicity and suggestions of uh, um, awards, etc., um, which I don't see is a bad idea. But um, there are people out there who will have handled other emergencies today, tomorrow, the next day, who will do an equally good job. And I also commend them for their professionalism, not taking anything away from, from this crew. They did a fine job. But let's remember that hopefully we're all capable of uh, handling our aircraft in a similar way if we uh, get a similar problem. Yeah, come on, listen, people in society, you know, get your head straight here. You know, let's let's not think in genders and in races and in religious uh, whatever. You know, it's it's we're all human beings and we all some of us have the abilities to do certain things and some of us don't. I can't run a marathon like Dr. Steph can. I mean, she just has those talents and abilities that I don't. And it doesn't, it's not because she's a female and I'm a male. There are plenty of males out there that run marathons. <laughs> so, you know, <laughs> better than me, I might add. Much so, you know, me. it's like, you know, why, why do we get so hung up on this? I guess that's my thing. It just kind of gets me. It's like, I thought the whole point of this is to ignore all of this and to just, she's a pilot. I'm a pilot. Dr. Steph's a pilot. Nick's a pilot. We're pilots. Uh, but again, I do see the other, and, and I'm, I haven't been in your shoes, Dr. Steph, and all of you other aviators out there who are women. I understand that has not been an easy thing to do. And, uh, I've cringed many, many times from some of the comments that I've heard over the decades of flying. And so I get where you're coming from. I, I can't, you know, say that I completely understand and, and have the same feeling because I'm not in your shoes. I can't, but and, I have a feeling, you know, and I should add, you know, a lot of those, you know, like we talked a little bit about barriers or misconceptions or, uh, you know, negative snide comments or remarks that unfortunately people experience and hear. I have been party to very few of those along the way. Um, I was even struggling to think if I could remember an instance where I've had or I've encountered a barrier like that. And I don't think I have necessarily. So I've been very fortunate, perhaps, or perhaps it's just that times have changed and we've moved on and my road has been easier because of people who came before me. Um, and if I do hear or encounter some of these things, they tend to just kind of go in one ear and out the other. And I don't pay a whole lot of attention to it because it's not worth getting hung up on for the most part. Um, I was uh, recalling a, <laughs> a uh, instance where uh, I think I was working on my instrument ticket. Um, we'd flown actually into Raleigh, Durham, and we were at the FBO uh, being my flight instructor at the time. And we were going out on the uh, ramp to go pre-flight and head back to our home base and uh, as we walked out it was night um, one of the ramp workers came out and said you guys can't be out here what are you doing <laughs> we're like well that's our plane right there and we're gonna take it back to where we came from if that's okay with you he goes oh I, I, I had no idea it's like okay thanks so yeah and, and, and I can't both, both female pilots so whether that had anything to do with it or not I, I don't know it's probably just we look suspicious 
obviously. Nah, so. <laughs> I think it was a female thing probably. And, you know, we all, you know, remember the little riddle about the, you know, the, the surgeon that says I can't operate on oh, yeah. him. He's my son. My and son. we all go, huh? Well, how can that be? Because, you know, we have those built in stereotypes. And it's funny. I didn't get the, the riddle at first. It made no <laughs> sense because I was like, well, obviously it's just his mom. Yeah. See, you have the your your mind is, uh you know, set properly. Uh, and I think a lot of it, Steph, is because you are younger. Uh, I remember, you know, I've been with uh, the airlines for almost 30 years now and before that in the Air Force. And I can tell you early on, uh, several decades ago, it was not uncommon at all to hear comments like, you know, you hear a female voice on the radio and another empty kitchen. I mean, I heard that all the time and I just never said anything. It's like, come on, you know, get with the get with the 80s, right? <laughs> get with the 90s, whatever, <laughs> you know, get with the whatever we're in now, the 2010s. Uh, or the 20 teens. I don't know what our, what our time is called now, but you know, it's, I think that it just takes time to kind of, you know, to, to get rid of those stereotypes and to accept. It, it takes a long time, but I think we're moving in the right direction. So. Yeah, we are. We are maybe not fast enough. Uh, but, uh, again, uh, I've, it's been a very, very long time since I've heard any derogatory comment about females as, and, or different races. So that's a good thing. I'm, I'm glad for it. So, um, let's see. So I'm sure we're going to be hearing more about the uh, particular engine issue in this thing and, and whether they're going to discover more, you know, problems with this particular, uh, uh type of engine. Yeah. I, I might point out, I've got many thousands of hours flying with aircraft with these engines, uh, all of which, uh, generally speaking, work well, I only had three engine problems, uh, on the CFM 56, but none of my blades fell off. So that's good. Yeah. All right. So, uh, yeah, big news. I'm sure it's not the last we'll hear of, of this. And, um, I, th- I think it was a good discussion and hopefully again, nobody takes what I'm saying, uh, the wrong way. It's just that, uh, I just really have that same vision that, uh, Martin Luther King did, you know, it's, let's not judge each other by the color of our skin, but on the, you know, the content of our character and, our abilities uh, to do jobs, you know, certain jobs. Uh, clearly, there are some, many, many things that I cannot do. I'm just not built for it or, or have the right mind for it or have the talent for it. Um, anyway, uh, this happened right after, a day after the uh, emergency landing by the Southwest 1380 flight. Uh, this was in Atlanta. And last time I checked, it wasn't even in the Aviation Herald. This was from... Uh, let's see the news source here, uh, foxnews.com, and Chris Cheatwood uh, sent this in. Uh, a Delta jet made an emergency landing Wednesday after smoke was seen pouring from one of the plane's engines. The plane, which was departing for London, immediately returned and aircraft rescue and firefighting officials hosed down the aircraft's smoking engine. The plane was towed back to the concourse with the passengers aboard. No injuries have been reported. And I'm thinking, you know, why why was this reported and then uh, the next line here a reporter with fox 5 atlanta was aboard the plane <laughs> and said the incident occurred nearly half an hour uh-huh. into the flight i think ah no wonder we're hearing about it <laughs> i'm wondering how many the many things happen out there that we don't really ever hear about because there's not somebody from the media on board uh, but um, you know we see a lot of these things if you follow um, simon's website aviation herald uh, avherald.com um, and i'm always amazed at the number of things that he has on that site, but I bet that's just a fraction of what actually is happening out there in the world. 
Um, but um, I have a little audio from this. Somebody recorded this uh, inside the cabin, and this is real. It's not a joke. I think the captain must be a former Northwest because he said purser. Um, I, I don't believe the, a lot of the Delta pilots ever refer to flight attendants as purser. Uh, issue with the uh, engine on the right-hand side. Uh, apparently there's some smoke coming from it. Once again, uh, we're in good hands with their uh, efficient... Uh, uh, ...making sure that the small little fires out. Please stand by with the seatbelts fast and we anticipate uh, hopefully taxiing clear in just uh, a few minutes, but we need to have the fire, fire trucks uh, do their job. Thank you. We would have more information about the flight number, the type of airplane, the type of engines, etc., uh, if uh, this was covered on the Aviation Herald. But uh, that's all the information we have. Is just a flight bound for London uh, that occurred a, a day after the, uh, I guess so that was yesterday, Wednesday, the uh, 18th of April. But it's kind of nice to hear uh, the captain or the captain's representative coming on the PA and telling people, you know, it's okay. They're going to put the fire out. This is smoking a little bit, but we're okay. And uh, Turns out that that was true. So yeah, yeah, I saw some discussion um, about why they didn't uh, evacuate this aircraft with, you know, smoke coming from an engine. Um, but valid points were brought up that if you know fire and rescue is on the scene and they have a good sense of what's going on and there's good communication between the two crews, you know, the majority of injuries in those cases come from the evacuation itself. So if everything is clearly under control, no need to to panic there. Exactly. And there, there obviously wasn't any smoke pouring into the, co- you know, the cabin and right. people weren't choking or whatever. So um, I think the, that was the right decision that uh, the uh, captain, the crew made on the, in that particular situation. So thank you, Chris, for uh, pointing that out to us. And then finally, kind of mentioned it at the very beginning. Hopefully we won't spend too much time on it. Uh, the uh, U.S. Air Force uh, Lockheed Martin F-22A Raptor skidded on its belly across the runway of NAS Naval Air Station Fallon near Reno, Nevada, on the 13th of April after a takeoff mishap. The pilot was able to exit the aircraft without major injuries and the cause of the crash is unknown, although the incident is under investigation, said Anchorage-Alaska-based Joint Base Elmendorf-Richardson Base. The aircraft is assigned to the base's third wing. The F-22A was in Nevada for mock dogfighting against fighter aircraft and the Navy Strike Fighter Tactics Instructor Program, also called Top Gun. Now, I'm thinking to myself, maybe uh, maybe it wasn't an Air Force. Uh, do the, does the Navy have F-22s? Does anybody know? I thought it was just I, Air Force that had them sorry, right I'm now. Sorry, I'm not the, the right person to ask about military. But I know that Elmendorf is a, a an Air Force base, but it talks about joint base. So perhaps uh, there's a Navy out um unit assigned there. Well, it doesn't it really mentions matter. that they were there for dogfighting against the fighter aircraft of the Navy. Yeah. Strike so program. that's so why they were probably the dissimilar type that yeah. they were going to train against that day. Thank you. Micah says that the Navy does not fly the F-22. So, uh, yeah, it was an Air Force uh, F-22. Uh, images on social media show the aircraft resting on the tarmac with its landing gear retracted. Joint Base Elmendorf said that the aircraft later was hoisted into a position where the landing gear could be extended and locked. It was then towed to a position where damage and repairs can be evaluated. 
uh, posts to a Facebook page, Air Force Forum, which is not officially associated with the U.S. Air Force, said that the aircraft suffered from a left engine flameout while the plane was taking off and raising its landing gear, though those claims have not been independently verified. And uh, the quote from them is, the cause of this incident is still under investigation. It's not known at this time whether a landing gear, engine malfunction, or any other mechanical issue were factors in the incident. And then uh, an update from some sources on another website said that info on the Raptor mishap at Fallon, the the slide happened on takeoff. It appears to have been a left engine flame out when the pilot throttled up to take off. By the time he realized the engine was dead, he had already been airborne for a few seconds and raised the gear. The jet bounced for around 1,500 feet and then slid for about 5,000 feet. They got it off the ground and on its landing gear last night, so the runway's clear. Um, Anyway, if you look at the uh, pictures on social media, especially the one, the shot from behind the jet looking forward, you'll notice that the left nozzle is in the downward uh, pointing position and the left, uh, I don't know if they call it an elevon, um, is in a position that would indicate to me uh, it would make sense if the left engine had failed and the jet was, the computers of the jet were attempting to keep the airplane from turning to the left. Uh, So that kind of comports with all the information that we have with the left engine failing and uh, not having enough energy, I guess, to fly away from the ground and maybe yeah, a I premature would say that gear raise. It would be unlikely. I think the aircraft should perform uh, adequately on one engine. Uh, it was uh, going off for a dogfighting mission. It would be reasonably lightweight. There was no stores underneath. So uh, it looks like it's uh, clean. Uh, which means it should have uh, plenty of performance. I suspect the next time this guy gets airborne, he won't be quite so quick to whip the gear up because uh, it might have been just that unexpected loss of thrust that dropped him a few feet onto the runway. And perhaps if he had a few more feet underneath him when he pulled the gear up, he would have uh, got away with it without any problems. Could this be a case of one of those embarrassing premature uh, gear retractions? Well, I wouldn't go as far as to say that. I mean, uh, I, from my days, we were always pretty snappy getting the gear up, uh, but it was a kind of a thing because, uh, like, we did everything pretty snappy, uh, whereas actually waiting just a couple of seconds before you, you heave the gear up uh, gives you enough room that if you do lose an engine and uh, drift down a little uh, with, without realizing, then you've still got room to... Uh, um, maneuver, or you've got a bit of air underneath you. But uh, I, I'm double guessing what the situation here was. But certainly, I would fully expect the aircraft to be fly, be flown perfectly adequately at that point on one engine. Yeah, me too. I, I think that maybe just wasn't aware of the loss of thrust and assumed that it would have the same performance that he that he was used to. Uh, I'm saying he. It may have been she. Uh, the crash. I hope the airplane would tell him. With yeah. a, an androgynous voice, as opposed to Bitching Betty that we had on the FX. <laughs> no, see, I'm kind of a fan of Bitching Betty. <laughs> a lot of people yeah. are. <laughs> uh, you know, this is not the first time that they had this issue with a F-22A Raptor uh, in December of last year. Um, well, in December, it returned to service, I guess, sometime um Oh, it was in 2012. It took five years to fix the thing. An aircraft skidded across the runway of Tyndall Air Force Base in Florida when a trainee attempted a touch-and-go landing but mistakenly retracted the landing gear before pushing the throttle to military power. Oops. 
In addition to repairing scratches to the skins of the wing and the stabilator, the U.S. Air Force replaced the skins and doors of the central and aft fuselage of that aircraft at a cost of only $35 million. What a bargain. <laughs> yes. I'm sure that student was worth it. <laughs> and now I know where all my tax money goes. Right. Yeah. Or some yeah. of it anyway. Because <laughs> it was just tax day. I know. Really two days ago, but thanks to the IRS and their wonderful use of technology yesterday. Dr. Steph at AirlinePilotGuy.com. That's right. <laughs> okay. You guys ready to move on to the best part of the show? Absolutely. Sure. Let's do it. Captain, incoming message. Let's start with uh, Jonathan. Hey, Captain, Jeff, crew. What, with all this talk about Dana's impending and long-awaited, and long-awaited conversion to Captain, and Captain Jeff's comment in episode 313 or 314 that he was just 2,000-odd days away from retirement, I wondered what Captain Jeff's plan was for the rest of his career. I know in the past he's mentioned a possible switch to the 7576. Is that still the case? Is it coming anytime soon? Those of us who fly Acme, but rarely on the Mad Dog, want to know if we might have a chance to have Captain Jeff's mustache navigating us across the country anytime soon. <laughs> I don't think my mustache will be doing the navigating, but... Uh, it's a very talented you. mustache. It is a say. very talented. <laughs> uh, okay, I'll skip that. Uh, yeah. Keep up the great work on the show. Jonathan in Minneapolis. And uh, so, well, that's a good question. I really, I don't know the answer to that, Jonathan. I'm still kind of playing it by ear. Uh, the uh, Mad Dogs are being retired and the clip is, is starting to pick up. The pace is picking up and uh, it really depends on how they start utilizing the airplane, what the trips look like specifically. Uh, if they start uh, looking like um, multiple day trips with multiple legs on each day, then that might be the time for Captain Jeff's mustache to say, so long, farewell, Auf Wiedersehen, goodbye, um, and move to the uh, 7576. I do, as many of you know, uh, have some things going on in my personal life, uh, some issues, legal issues, trust issues, not trust as in people don't trust me, but like a, like a trust, like a, like a will, like a trust. I'm a trustee of a, a trust and it's, um, uh, there, it's involved in some legal issues and I really want all that to be resolved, uh, before I go back to another, uh, school to learn a new airplane, which is kind of stressful for me anyway. And so, you know, we'll have to, we'll have to wait and see if I can stay on this airplane and I still have a pretty nice lifestyle. I may just do that. And, um, if not, then I'll most likely move to the seven, five, seven, six, we call it the seven, six ER category, which, uh, basically does domestic flying here in the U S it does international flying, uh, both to Europe and the Southern hemisphere and, uh, the, uh, far East or Asia, I guess I should say. Um, so a lot of uh, different uh, opportunities there. So we'll just have to wait and see. Megan and some others also uh, submitted some feedback regarding uh, this article. I guess they had some kind of a show, uh, Aircraft Interiors uh, International Show recently. And Airbus uh, has recruited Zodiac Aerospace to jointly develop passenger facilities for the cargo decks of A330s and A350s. Under an agreement signed at the aircraft, oh, here we go, the Aircraft Interiors Expo in Hamburg, partners will, from 2020, 
offer potential customers a range of different modules with the same dimensions as regular cargo containers as, quote, certified solutions, Airbus says. Facilities will include passenger sleeping berths, meeting rooms, office desks, or open space that could be used, for example, as a lounge or a children's jail. I mean, play area. Uh, Up to four modules, each four meters wide, 2.4 meters long, and 1.5 meters high. Or for those of you who don't understand any of that, that's 13 by 8 by 5 feet. Can be loaded via the aircraft's cargo door and loading system. Airbus says the modules will not affect the cargo floor and loading system and will be easily interchangeable with regular freight containers during a typical turnaround. However, aircraft will require modifications to allow access from the main deck and connections for electricity and passenger amenities. Airbus head of cabin and cargo Jeff Pinner says the airframer will build demonstrator modules that will be flight tested on an A330. He says the product will initially be offered to A330 operators as both a line and retrofit solution, as more than 150 aircraft are in service that are already configured to be equipped with crew rest compartments on the lower deck. Now, this is not the first time, by the way. Uh, Well, here, let me read what Megan said when she sent this in. Hi, I'm Megan, a very new listener without an aviation background, but I've really been enjoying your podcast. I've always been fascinated by airport logistics, air traffic control topics. Just read an article today that Airbus is going to, and well, we just read it for you. Uh, It says, it sounds like, or she says, it sounds like passengers who want one of the sleep pods would additionally pay for a seat in the main cabin. I'm curious what you guys think about this, particularly related to the safety of the passengers moving between the main cabin and the cargo hold throughout the flight. Are cargo holds normally pressurized? If something were to go amiss with the plane, like an emergency, would those passengers in the cargo hold be in more danger than those in the main cabin? Uh, The article says the pods won't affect the loading of the plane, but I was curious about your thoughts in it. Thanks. And again, that's Megan. Welcome, Megan. Uh, glad to see that you're here with us, and welcome aboard the APG community. And Nick, so you fly the 330, 340. Uh, perhaps one of these days they may load up one of these Zodiac aerospace uh, containers. Um, would that be that unusual? Um, well, not really, I don't think. Um, it, there have been uh, crew compartments, as the article suggests, in the cargo area, and we're calling it a cargo area, but it's just another deck of the aircraft. Um, if you didn't hold, uh, put baggage in there, you could actually turn almost any airliner into a two-deck aircraft. You could put seating down there. There's really not much to stop you. Just there's nowhere to put the bags and any cargo you want to carry. And uh, usually the ceiling is a little low, but if you uh, move the floor up, you know you could turn almost any wide body into a two-deck aircraft, which is effectively what they're doing here. Um, the uh, moving up and down between the two decks, well, it would be just the same as being on an A380 and going up and down the stairs or on a 747 uh, and uh, climbing up the stairs between the two decks that exist on their, those aircraft. So there's no real difference. Certainly uh, from a safety point of view, there's no problem at all. Um what about people down there and their safety? Well, uh, you would actually have to probably have um, cabin crew specifically uh, allocated to those areas to ensure that when the seatbelt signs went on, that whatever restraint facilities were down there, people took to them 
and that the cabin was properly secured with the passengers uh, in a safe position while they were down there. I doubt that they would need to have to come back up to the upper cabin because that might take too long. Uh, they would probably uh, have some kind of seating system down there. But that means doubling up on seats. So from an economic point of view, I think this is an expensive option. You'd need to have seat upstairs for probably uh, uh, for takeoff and landing. And if you wanted to go down there to rest or to have a conference, you would have to pay for an extra amount for that facility, I suspect. So I personally don't see this as a very practical um, concept certainly for the average airplane or the average airline. But, of course, there may be some businessmen who, uh, or some big businesses who think it's a brilliant idea. They can move a lot of executives around the world. They can have meetings. They can sleep on board while they're moving between their company headquarters, various countries. It might be an option for a few individual aircraft. But I'm doing this off the top of my head. I've no real um, idea of what uh, the projected use of these aircraft are, but I certainly don't think you're going to find them on your average um, bucket and spade um, charter down to, uh, you know, the, the beaches of Spain anytime uh, soon. Although purely uh, from a passenger point of view, it looks pretty comfy. I could go have a very nice nap down there. and uh, Oh, I think it'd be great down there. I think yeah. there'll be some, some nice sleeping bunks. Uh, I think you're, you know, you've probably got facilities down there that you, lots of room, uh, you know, you can uh, move around. You could, uh, you know, you'd probably be able to stay in those in turbulence. I suspect if they, as long as there are straps, certainly in our bunks that we rest in on the aircraft, we have straps and we secure ourselves lying down. Um, and th- as so long as uh, you were clothed while you were sleeping, uh, and the, the, so the cabin crew didn't open a pod and find a naked person there just because they wanted to check that they were properly strapped in, that's a disadvantage of this. Uh, you're you're going to have to, uh, you know, maintain, realize that you're not really private in there at any time. The cabin crew may um, slide open whatever curtains there are and have a look at you. So just to make sure that everybody understands, and and I, I'm assuming that I'm understanding this properly, is the fact that uh, airplanes are certified for uh, for egress and all that kind of stuff for the seating in the main cabin level slash levels and all the emergency exits and all that kind of stuff. So I think that um, these pods would be used after the airplane was safely airborne and and uh, would be evacuated before the airplane came in for a landing yeah uh, that, yeah so, that's, that's, that would have that's to the, the way case. i read it you'd, you'd need so you'd need to have a seat upstairs in the main cabin and then you'd pay to have an additional uh, area downstairs which would be presumably quite expensive because you're now you're paying for two seats and you're only really ever using one of them and right. i don't see any seats down there that look suitable for takeoff landing anyway so right but I think maybe somebody, people reading this article might think, oh, you know, I can just, you know, that you, you can just start off by, you know, being in one of these compartments. Uh, but I don't believe that's ever going to happen until the, uh, unless the aircraft are recertified with uh, suitable emergency exits and prove that they can evacuate everybody within 90 seconds and all that kind of stuff. And obviously that would be cost prohibitive. So, yeah, you'd have to start fitting doors into the cargo. Yeah. 
doors or whatever, or using the cargo doors themselves as a bridge exit isn't very practical. And Megan was wondering, you know, is it pressurized? And yes, believe it or not, the cargo compartments are pressurized. But not all of them are necessarily heated. So uh, you'd have to make sure that, uh, you know, you had proper cargo bay heating. Uh, A lot of our cargo bays uh, just take ambient air from the cabin above. And that isn't individually controlled, so it wouldn't be very comfortable for someone down there. Uh, uh, and only, example, on most of my aircraft, only the bulk cargo hold, which is a smaller hold right at the tail of the airplane, is specifically heated and has control, heating controls. Back in the day when I flew the L-1011, on certain models of the L-1011, we had a lower galley uh, in the uh, area uh, below the main passenger deck where there were a bunch of ovens and we had a couple lifts uh, that uh, the uh, carts would be put upon and uh, lifted up to the main level and then of course the empty carts would come back down and it was also a way for uh, the uh, cabin crew to go down and come back up uh, from the lower cargo hold and I remember that in that particular airplane on those models that had the lower galley one of the items on the uh, before I think it was a before landing checklist or perhaps it was the approach checklist uh, was you know the lower galley uh, secured which meant that no cabin crew could be in the lower galley for takeoff or landing. So. Interesting. Yeah. Hmm. All right. Well, thank you, Megan, and everybody else who sent in feedback regarding this article about uh, Zodiac Aerospace. And I'm great the... to have you on board, Megan. Yes. Welcome. Let's see. TP from New Jersey has a piece of audio feedback that they sent us, so let's listen. Hello, APG crew. My name is TP from New Jersey. I am a lifelong av geek and have recently been plagued with the syndrome. I just started listening a few weeks ago and started with the first episode of 2018, episode 305. I've since made it into March and just finished episode 313. I'd like to offer two pieces of feedback. One is more of a comment, the other is a question. Here we go with the first one. Over the past few episodes, there have been several mentions of the Aleutian IL-62. This plane is a really special one for me, and is almost certainly the reason why I'm an avgeek today, and I guess ultimately responsible for infecting me with the syndrome. It was my freshman year of high school during the spring of 1992, and I was about to board my first flight. This was a flight from JFK to Kiev Borispol Airport in Ukraine on an Air Ukraine IL-62. I'll never forget the moment as we taxied onto the runway at JFK. The pilot lined the plane up, and then, all of a sudden, all four engines started screaming. However, we weren't moving. For what seemed like a full minute, we were at full power, and then, all of a sudden, we were thrown back into our seats. It wasn't until we rolled across every inch of available runway that I felt the plane lift off, and I, for the first time in my life, was airborne. Who would have thought that a kid that grew up in the suburbs of New Jersey would have his first flight on an IL-62? I happen to dig up a few pictures of the plane, and will send them in a separate feedback. Now for my question. A few years ago, I was sitting on my favorite beach in the whole world, Maho Beach in St. Martin. This is the beach directly across from the arrival end of runway 10 at SXM, Princess Juliana Airport. You can literally almost reach out and touch the landing airplanes and be blown over by the jet blast from the departing ones. 
I'm not sure you can legally consider yourself an Avgeek unless you've made a pilgrimage there. I was there on a particularly busy day. I saw everything. A320, 737, 757, 767, a 747, an A330, an A340. Everyone, without except everyone with one exception, excuse me, including all the heavies, were departing on runway 10. For those who might not be familiar with that departure, you need to make an immediate right turn to avoid a big hill at the departure end of the runway. The exception that day was American Airlines, post-US Air merger. Regardless of what they were flying, 737, A320, or even an A330, they all took off from runway 28, even if it disrupted flow at that airport. You heard them on the radio telling the tower that they required runway 28. My question is why did they need that runway, even when everyone else, including a 747 and an A340, were able to take off on runway 10? Thanks. Well, I wish we had Colonel Jeff with us. He would be able to perhaps answer that question. I'm not sure. I I don't know what the answer is to that. Do you, Captain Nick? Well, I'm guessing uh, it's uh, perhaps a company restriction. They may decide that for them, the safest uh, departing runway was the one not pointing towards the hill, in which case they would have written to their pilots saying, unless in exceptional circumstances, you are to request this particular runway for departure. That's the only thing I can think of that would cause one airline to do something different to what everyone else was doing. Yeah, and it obviously must be a, a, a company-wide or airline, you know, uh, uniform policy because it was only the American flights that were doing that. Yeah, yeah. And but did I'm, you say regardless of aircraft type or it was just one aircraft type? No, regardless of regardless. the aircraft type. Okay. Yeah. 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 So but I'm not uh, familiar with that aircraft or the departures, so I can't really comment yeah, on that. Yeah, I don't have any experience there either. I would imagine that their engineering would have to go through and make sure that it was all safe and they met the proper performance requirements good question though and i know that jeff is listening so jeff uh send us some great audio feedback as you are want to do occasionally or well it's all good when you do send it in so yes it is Uh, please uh let us know if we're if we're close to the correct answer thank you for your feedback tp from nj uh glad you uh are part of our community and uh, we appreciate it. Thanks for your reflection of your story on the uh, Lucian 62. Yeah. The old VC 10 ski. The Russians uh, did a lot of spying on uh, um, aviation companies around the time that Concord was being built. Well, one of the aircraft that they managed to um, get the plans for was the VC 10. And lo and behold, an almost identical aircraft uh, subsequently appeared uh, in the Soviet Union, The uh, an almost identical copy of the VC-10. I wonder how they worked that out. I don't know. And then, you know, the uh, Concorde ski is very similar. <laughs> it was. And uh, the C-5 ski um, <laughs> is also <laughs> <Yeah>. suspiciously similar. Dave's <laughs> yeah. an awful lot of money if you can pinch someone else's uh, blueprints. Yeah. They, yeah. Why, well, why can, do all the work for yourself? Right. Yeah. The, I guess the, what could be said is the uh, the Russians have great spies. <laughs> yes, they do. <laughs> this is from Steve, officer who dragged passenger off United flight now suing. So 
So Steve Nicholson, he says, hey, APG crew, it appears the famous United Airlines doctor beating story from last year is back in the news. See attached link. It almost defies logic. Also, can you believe that was a year ago already? Time has flown past. I must be getting old. Cavu uh, and tailwinds to all Louisiana, Steve. Uh, so, yeah, this is going back to the um, Dr. Dow incident on the United flight almost a year ago. Exactly. So in a lawsuit filed on Tuesday, the officer, Officer Long, says he was not properly trained to handle the April 9th, 2017 situation on board a United flight. The incident occurred when the cabin crew on board a flight from Chicago to Louisville dispatched for airport aviation police when two passengers, uh, Dr. Dow and his wife, refused to get off the plane after they were bumped off the overbooked flight. Long was one of several officers who responded to the call, which ended in him dragging Dow out of his seat. As a result of the incident, Dow ended up with a broken nose, two missing teeth, and a concussion. Long and another officer were fired. Now Long says he was unfairly fired. The lawsuit also claims that Chicago Aviation Commissioner Ginger Evans slandered Long when she posted on social media that Long and the other officers did not behave appropriately and that they were not armed for good reasons, in quotes. Slander. Slander. Um, let's see. The This is in parentheses. The dragging incident occurred amid a push to arm the aviation police force, in parentheses. Uh, so these false statements implied that Long was not acting in his capacity as a, as a police officer, the lawsuit complaint claims. The lawsuit charges negligence and defamation, and Log is seeking action because he feels he was doing his duty at the time Dr. Dow was escorted off the plane. Uh, that was his attorney talking. He was not in the wrong, but if he did do something wrong, it was because the city of Chicago failed to properly train him. A request for comment from the Chicago Department of Aviation was not immediately returned. Dr. Dow's attorney had no comment on the new lawsuit. And a United spokesperson told TPG, which is, I think, where this article came from, or thepointsguy.com, uh, that the company has not yet been served with the suit and therefore was unable to comment. So uh, it says uh, that Long had been unemployed since being fired following the incident last year. He had worked for the Chicago Department of Aviation since 2015. So... So does uh, does he have a point, or is this just a legal maneuver to kind of? Well, you know. I think the the point is that he's been unemployed because he was fired after the incident, and now he's trying to go back and say, "Well, but they didn't train me to handle a situation like this, and it's their fault that it's not I my got fault. Fired. I wasn't trained to take a doctor off an airplane." Right. So I I don't know that I have much commentary or opinion on that because. Uh, you're not well, I think yeah, you should personally exactly. offer yourself up for training and for kicking training? doctors off airplanes. So. <laughs> I mean, just, you could you, you could just page the guy, right? Like, just page him, paging Dr. Dow. <laughs> <laughs> I think what you should do is uh, say, right, okay, I'll uh, I'll charge these police officers one at a time. I'll go up skydiving, and you can kick me out of the airplane. <laughs> Seems a little extreme. <laughs> um, no, I think this. I, I, yeah, I'm being a little tongue-in-cheek because I have opinions, but I'm not going to actually say them at this point. Doctors and lawyers, you know how that goes. Do you? No. <laughs> <laughs> I can only guess. I can yeah. only guess. But anyway, there you have it. Uh, we're yeah. pulling this story back into the news for better or worse. Probably worse. Worse, um, yeah. Worse. Sorry, maybe you'll read it. <laughs> well... Captain Nick, uh, would you yes, like sir. to tackle number six, uh, sent in by many people, including Colonel Jeff and Brian? 
Okay, this uh, uh, is from Engadget.com. And uh, Colonel Jeff says, looks like FedEx is already using these somewhat. P.S. Hope to get to Newark on the 17th. Uh, that's two days ago. That yeah, didn't happen. <laughs> didn't happen. Apparently, you didn't make it. Ah, uh, useless. Um, <laughs> so it, it's entitled Wearables. Uh, FedEx will use smart glasses to help pilots land in emergencies. Um, so saved, uh, S-A-V-E-D, let's crew see what's outside when smoke fills the cockpit. Smoke is understandably a serious danger for aircraft and not just in life-threatening situations. The FAA notes that there's typically one smoke-related landing per day. But how, that's a lot. That but is. how does the pilot land with a smoke-filled cockpit when they might not even see the instrument cluster, let alone the world outside? Well, FedEx and the Oosterhout Design Group have an idea. They're showing off SAVED, which stands for Smoke Assured Vision Enhanced Display. Yes, it's a forced acronym. A hybrid smart glass, or, or hybrid smart glasses, I should say, and an oxygen mask system uh, that provides data from the aircraft's head-up display and the external cameras to help with emergency landings. Well, that's assuming your airplane has a head-up display and external cameras. Pilots won't have to fly blind or risk passing out just to avoid a disaster. I presume they mean by passing out that they would take their mask off. I don't see how that would improve visibility, but yeah. we'll see. Um, the system is small, light, easy to install, loose to house claims, and is easy to see as much from a quick glance. And it's easy to see as much, I'm sorry, from a quick glance. Smart glasses are usually bulky by themselves, but they're relatively compact in an oxygen mask. Not surprisingly, FedEx is the first customer. I'm not quite sure why it's not surprisingly. Do they have an awful lot of smoky cockpits? <laughs> apparently. Well, they have had they're some They're in need of their services, yes. They've yeah, had some apparently. instances where, you know, they had smoke and, and they had some tragic crashes because of it. Ah, okay. Uh, perhaps something for plane tails. Um, it's using SAVE for both training and real-world flights. There's no mention of other customers just yet. However, it's easy to see other carriers and airlines adopting wearable tech like this in the future where it could save lives. Uh, in the best cases, uh, avoid crash landings. Oh, I this, get it. It's easy to see. Uh, uh, clever. It went past me. I don't um, think they were trying to do that. Pun Possibly. not intended. Pun not intended. I mean, this is uh, a movement of technology from, I suspect, the military um, uh, monocles that uh, pilots and uh, projected displays onto uh, helmet visors um, that uh, military pilots now have and moving into the civil world so that you would get an impression of what's uh, happening uh, or what is occurring in a smoke-filled cockpit being projected onto your glass um, oxygen mask visor um, to allow you to fly the airplane, which is a damn good idea, but I'm just thinking, um, actually, there's a there's an application for this all the time, or at least certainly during takeoff and landing, not just in the smoke-filled cockpits, but perhaps uh, in fog or uh, at night uh, that would aid pilots. Um, and I don't see why this technology should just be restricted to the few times when 
you're likely to uh, encounter smoke in the cockpit. Now, apart from the sim, uh, Jeff, have you ever had to deal with smoke in the cockpit? No. Thank goodness. I hope I never do. No, likewise. Uh, it would be lovely to have this sort of technology. Yes. But I'm just thinking of the cost against the uh, reward. Um, mm-hmm. There aren't, haven't been that many accidents that I can know of, that I can immediately recall, that where pilots have crashed because they had smoke-filled cockpits uh, and it obscured their vision. I know plenty of cases where the smoke-filled cockpit has been down to a fire and that has caused the crash, but not just a loss of vision. So it seems to be quite an expensive technology that will sit in a little box beside you and possibly never, ever be pulled out. I have flown with people, though, that have had really, really difficult circumstances with that kind of a thing with the smoke in the cockpit oh, right. and uh they almost crashed but they were able to get it on the ground of course you didn't hear anything of it because it was a was a good outcome but uh i would imagine yeah. that in that you know one instance or more uh it uh, it would be i mean i know that i think it would be worth the uh, the money spent my the managers at acme may not feel the same but uh no they, um, they may well say well you've got a um You've got an auto land system. Just use yeah. that. Just do an auto. Not sure. Yeah, that'll work. Yeah. yeah. So I, I withdraw. It always works. Just yeah, it always works. Never. Yeah. It never has a problem. Never has a problem. Yeah. Never has a problem. <laughs> but I, I like it. It's 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 nice use of technology. And uh, like I say, I'd like to see that uh, not just available for uh, your, your oxygen mask. I'd like to see it usable. Uh, in more circumstances. Yeah. It kind of reminds me what synthetic vision is kind of uh, yep. using that technology, right? Exactly. Yeah. I like it. I hope that uh, maybe if enough airlines end up employing this technology, perhaps the cost will go down and it'll be affordable for everybody. Yeah. I don't know. That's wishful thinking, I'm sure. But well, thank you, Nick, for reading that. And thank you. Um, Colonel Jeff, Brian, and all the others that uh, sent feedback regarding this. Uh, They knew that we'd be interested in it. Hey, Mike uh, Carrolls, uh, the uh, Flying and Life host, was down in Fun and Sun in Lakeland, Florida. Sun and Fun. That too. Close enough. Yeah, the one that I was thinking of is the one the week before the Fun and Sun. But (laughs) Sun and Fun is the one actually that Mike was present and he met up with um, someone in the ABG community from a a long way away. So let's hear what he has to say. Hey, APG community. It's Mike, uh, dispatcher Mike here in Sun and Fun. And I, uh, if you remember from a few episodes ago, Gus sent some feedback about meeting up with people here while at Sun and Fun. Well, I met up with Gus and he has a very interesting story to tell. So Gus, what brings you to Sun Fun all the way from Buenos Aires, Argentina? I'm here like everyone else, I guess, to see airplanes and to see a nice show. We have uh, smaller shows down there, so this is huge and I I like it so far. Good. So as we were talking, uh, you told me that you just bought a a Piper Archer. Do you want to tell me a little bit about that? Yeah, Piper Arrow. Sorry, Sorry, a Piper Arrow. Yeah, it's a 1978 Piper Arrow, and we we actually bought it here in the states, and we we are we ex- exported it to Buenos Aires. So 
it's obviously the aircraft was cheaper here in the states than it was in Argentina. Um, so how did you get it all the way down to Buenos Aires from here in Florida? Um, did you do you fly it or what happened? Well, it, it's kind of a long story. We started down in September last year. Uh, I was lucky to have a, a friend here in the states who owned the plane, so he was the one who sold the plane to us. So we trusted him. We didn't have to go through the all all, all the uh, all the paperwork for making sure that everything was okay. Um, and we we brought the plane here to Lakeland, where there's a guy who takes the airplanes apart and put them in containers to ship them to anywhere in the world. So that's what we did. So you bought a perfectly good airplane, flew it from Fort Lauderdale to here in Lakeland, gave it to a guy to rip the wings off. That's right. <laughs> okay, so once you did that and he puts it in, uh, in the container, uh, explain the process and how the airplane actually got from here in Lakeland, Florida to Buenos Aires. All right. Uh, before that, before before they put the airplane, the airplane apart, um, they have to do the export certificate to make sure that the the airplane is airworthy. Uh, after that, they start putting it apart. They perfectly attach it to the container walls on the floor to make sure that nothing moves around. Uh, they took apart the wings. Uh, and they took some of the other parts apart, like the the cone of, of the propeller and, and other stuff. And the the container got uh, transported in a trunk, in a truck, sorry, <laughs> from Lakeland to Fort Lauderdale's airport. So it went flying from Fort Lauderdale to Lakeland and then back to Fort Lauderdale by truck inside the container. Then it's, it, uh, it was sitting there at the port for maybe two weeks until the ship came and they put it in the ship and it, got, it, it went to sail. Then we, we have been able to track the exact position, the exact location of the container through an app, uh, through a web app. It's just like a flight radar, but for ships. So the, the ship went to, no to the north first and then back to the south. It made several stops and finally one month later it arrived to the port of Buenos Aires. So you, uh, once it gets to Buenos Aires, then I assume it gets trucked to your airport now? Right, they put it in another truck. Uh, it went through customs. That took like maybe three to five days they do like an inspection and make sure that uh, everything you said you, you were going to import is actually what's in the container. So after we cleared that, uh, they took it to the airport. And we finally got to see the airplane there in, in Buenos Aires. That was a happy moment. <laughs> it is a happy moment. So explain the process of going and changing the registration from a U.S. registration to an Argentinian tail number. Yeah, you have to... After the airplane is on the ship, you can uh, make the deregistration of the current N number on the, on the airplane. And once you have that, you get assigned a new registration in, in your country. So, so you need to show in the destination country 
that the original uh, tail number is uh, is deregistered already. Gotcha. So now you have it at a home at the airport in a hangar, and you have airplane in a box. So how do you then go and uh, turn it from a container then back to uh, an airplane? Right. Uh, okay. First of all, to just to take it out of the container, it was quite a challenge because we didn't have the tools to do that. Uh, probably the people here in, in Lakeland does that every day with several airplanes. They have everything set up for that. So it, it was quite... Um, handcrafted let's say <laughs> um, so we finally put it into the floor and and into the hangar where there's a, a maintenance shop and they started to putting it together again so that was again a long process because uh, we wanted to change some of the bolts that secure the wings um, uh, and and it was difficult for us to get new balls down in Argentina, so we had to uh, import them again from the States. So it's been a, a really long process, and we're also changing some, some of the uh, interiors and installed a, a new radio. We had to paint, to repaint the, the registration number on the airplane, so we had to remove the old painting and put new painting on, and well, it's, it's, it took a long time, but it's almost ready. So hopefully by the end of this month, we'll have the airplane flying again. Okay. Well, that's really an interesting way to get an airplane and buy an airplane and all that. Um, let's talk a little bit about what's it like to fly in Argentina. Is it similar to the United States uh, flying, or what's the flying conditions like in Argentina? Yeah, it, it's, it's, nice. it's a nice place to fly. Uh, we have a lot of flat surface, so uh, no mountains for the most of the territory. You have some, in, some interesting mountain flying as well in the west and in the south. But um, the infrastructure is, is not as good as it is here in the States. Um, it's, it's quite difficult. We have many uncontrolled airfields with uh, grass runways. Um, my usual flying takes place in a grass runway, so I'm, I'm used to, to land there and, and take off from, from soft fields. So you used to use those grass strips and all of that. Is there, is there ATC user fees or anything like that in Argentina? No, usually no. Uh, the, the, the landing fees are mostly for the main airports, but you can easily go to any airfield, um, municipal airfield, or, or some even privately owned uh, airfields that are public for you to land there, and there's there's no cost on doing that. So thanks, Gus, very much for reaching out on the Airline Pilot Guy show for uh, coming and uh, spending the last couple of days uh, together with me, uh, going around with some fun. It's been a pleasure getting to know you, and uh, like I've said all the time before, if there's any APG members going to be somewhere, make sure you reach out to the other people in the community because. Uh, it is a truly good aviation community that we have here at the APG. And Flying in Life and PTUK and all of the great aviation podcasts out there, Airplane Geeks included. Um, so many great shows out there. Opposing Base. I know I'm going to forget somebody. So all of them are. You know great. who you are. You know. 
who you are. And, uh, but thank my, you know, that's the cool thing about this aviation podcasting world. Mike is the host of an awesome podcast flying in life. He goes down to fun and sun and is nope. I did that right again? No, sun and fun. <laughs> you have to be in the sun the before sun, you get the, the fun, fun. The sun, the sun, the sun, the fun. I don't know. Whatever it is, he was down there and yeah. he was having fun and it was in the sun. And, uh, but, you know, he took the time to uh, record something for our show, which is just amazing. So thank you, Mike, for, for doing that. And again, I, I feel like everybody that listens to all these different shows are, we're all part of the same community. Absolutely. So, Gus, that was cool. Uh, Gus from Argentina, and uh, that was a neat story about, um, you know, chopping up an airplane and putting it in a shipping container and then putting it all back together. I love it. Yeah. Very nice. Okay. Uh, let's see. You, there are a lot of airplanes out there that just look like shipping containers with wings on. Yeah, like the shorts. Yeah. <laughs> Exactly. Right? That's, the, that's the one that comes in. left the fuselage behind. Just stick the wings on the shipping container. <laughs> Maybe that's where they got the idea. They ship airplanes in these things. Yeah. Put some wings on it and a tail. There you go. go. Be just fine. Perfect. Yeah. All right. Uh, well, you know what? It wouldn't be an APG without plane tails. And so I think now would be a great time to play this week's installment of plane tails. The Sir Glenn Torpy interview, part three, the final installment. The old pilot's plain tales. In this third part of my interview with Sir Glenn, we discuss the conclusion of his work in the Gulf and talk a little about the rest of his distinguished career. At the end of the first Gulf War, when you guys uh, took your uh, dusty uh, but slightly now scratched um, tornadoes home. What was it like to get back uh, to your base? Uh, it was great. We were really lucky. I mean, the detachment didn't lose any, any guys. My biggest fear, if I'm honest, was we just spent six months doing some really exciting workup flying, 100 foot flying, 250 foot night TF flying and such like. We then had three months out on operations and I thought how am I going to get the boys to obey the rules when we get home but it was fascinating to see how the guys just slipped straight back into normal peacetime operations and I'm, I'm convinced in the way I analysed it in my own mind you know they got all of the excitement out of their system they didn't need to prove anything to anybody they'd done it um and it was, so I didn't really have to, to worry about it. Excellent. Now, you actually had quite a small detachment uh, from 13 Squadron out there. You must have formed pretty close fighting relationship with those guys. Yeah, and again, people ask me, you know, what was the biggest lesson? I learned a lot about human nature during it because, of course, suddenly you see people under you know, quite significant stress and everybody handles stress differently as well. Um, but it was fascinating just to see how people you knew, I knew pretty well, how they responded to you know, prolonged pressure and a really odd lifestyle as well for the period that we were out there because um, we used to sleep during the day um, and then obviously go and fly at night. 
and it was just a really weird environment. Now, I was immensely impressed with the, with the blokes, not just the air crew, I mean, the ground crew who used to work, you know, every hour that God gave them, keeping the jets going and the kit going as well. So, uh, no, it was, it was a great experience. And um, I, I used very hard in a war environment, but was there anything um, amusing uh, that occurred that you could perhaps relate to us? I'm not sure if I can think of anything amusing, if I'm honest. <laughs> no, no, it's a bit tricky. I'll tell you what, though, because we were, we were dry in, um, in Dharan as well, not, no surprise, which I actually I'm great, very grateful for. Um, I don't think that's the sort of thing you want to go off and... Um, have a few pints before you leap into your, your jet, or you know, leap into your jet with a hangover. Um, but I'll tell you what, it's very cheap when you go off to Bahrain after the war and you haven't had any, anything to drink for three months because you only need a couple of pints and <laughs> you're well inebriated. <laughs> uh, brilliant. Um, that, well, that's it for us with regards to your operational stuff, unless there's anything I've missed. No, I say so I just had I was in the right place at the right time, both as a squadron commander and then when I was AOC to be able to um, participate in those campaigns and because of the other jobs I did during my career, I've been really involved in operations all my all my service career, which has been a great privilege to see, you know, what the UK delivers at the end of the day across all three services. Great. Well, thanks very much. Um, before you go, though, um, perhaps we could examine just a little bit of uh, your career, which, of course, went on until you were the most senior officer in the Royal Air Force and basically ran the show. Um, at one point, you were chief of joint operations. What kind of a job was that? And were you doing things like attending COBRA meetings? I ought to perhaps explain that at COBRA meetings, senior ministers from the British government are briefed on major events and emergencies. I, um, my first experience of the Permanent Joint Headquarters, PJHQ, was actually as a one-star. So after I'd um, finished my station commander tour at Bruggen, went off and did the Royal College of Defence Studies, and then I was posted out of that to be Assistant Chief of Staff Operations in PJHQ. The headquarters only just stood up, so about 18 months before I joined, two years before I joined, it stood up. And this was an institution which had been created and many people were quite sceptical about the PJHQ but it, it proved its value um, straight off in terms of coordinating and then running the UK's operations so we were able to to bring together the joint force and then then manage and well, deploy it execute the operation and then bring the force home and then give it back give the force back to the, the single services. So I did, um, I did two years as, as ACOS J3, and that's when we did the Kosovo campaign. Um, we were still doing operations in Iraq, in the no-fly zones, and then we had peaks of activity like Operation Desert Fox and such like when Saddam misbehaved. Um, and then there were non-combatant evacuations we used to run as well every so often if you had to evacuate UK entitled people out of out of unstable bits of the world, plus humanitarian operations. So, um, I in years after that, I then became chief of joint operations, and at that stage, we were clearly running Iraq, Afghanistan, um, continuing operations in the Balkans, 
Um, and again, anything which popped up out of the woodwork, you know, very quickly, it could be a humanitarian um, relief operation, it could be a non-combatant operation. Fascinating job, really fascinating, and great to see um, our people from all three services out on operations. One of the most impressive and satisfying bits of the job, to be honest, to see how you know, relative youngsters in many cases are given an incredible amount of responsibility and very, very rarely let you down. Uh, and I, I was really impressed. Now, rather controversially, um, when you were Chief of the Air Staff, you uh, argued for the consolidation of the UK's air power, um, which basically meant you, want to take, you wanted to take the jets away from the Royal Navy. How did that go down? Um, I think it, needs to be, it needed to be viewed in you know, the wider context that defence was under real pressure from a financial perspective. And the Air Force had done a huge amount in terms of how can we consolidate our headquarters, how can we support our equipment better, and we'd made massive savings um, with the Harrier and with Tornado in reducing our support savings. But you then look at you know, how we did flying training, for instance, and how we manned different forces. And whilst, whilst, whilst we were you know, in earlier eras with larger forces, there may have been justification um, for you know, a maritime air component in reality or an army air component. When you were under those financial pressures, you really did need to look at you know, how can we do this more efficiently and cheaper because otherwise we were just going to end up with a smaller front line at the end of the day there's only a finite amount of money out there and uh, you spend it on people you spend it on training you spend it on logistic support um, or you spend it on capital aircraft and, and equipment so to me it was and the other aspect here is whilst in the past, you know, there was probably good justification for having maritime pilots flying F-4s, Buccaneers, off-carriers and such like, where you needed to practice those sort of skills on a very regular basis because of those sort of demands. As we looked into the era of F-35, and that's where I was focused, you look at an F-35, it'll fly up to a carrier automatically. So gone is the sort of trauma of landing an F-4 or a buccaneer on a, a heaving deck. And so in my, my view, there was an opportunity to save money by streamlining the way that we delivered air power. Uh, and that was the justification for you know, where I, I was coming from. It didn't make me some friends in certain quarters, but <laughs> you know, that, I, 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 I passionately believe that that's... Now, as we get smaller, we cannot afford duplication. Do you still have to take a bit of a, uh, a route around Admiralty when you walk through London? No, I've got some very good mates in the, <laughs> in the Navy. <laughs> but I do see your point. I mean, if you treated uh, an aircraft carrier as just another airfield and the RAF uh, employed to it as they would do or be based on one as they might do on a land-based uh, airfield, then you just you just do see the logic. Yeah, I mean, there's no doubt the carriers are 
hugely useful as uh, an alternate flexible basing option. And also, in certain circumstances, there is no doubt if you go and park a carrier off somebody's shore, they will take notice of you. And there are certain scenarios when that is hugely valuable. Now, you did mention that, uh, of course, you were around when the Harrier was taken, some would say prematurely, out of service. Uh, What was the justification for that? That, that again, was really simple. Um, We had had, again, we were under financial pressure, and we had to find savings. And you either salami slice your existing force structure, so you say get rid of a couple of tornado squadrons and a Harrier squadron, for instance. But actually, it's the logistic support of those platforms which is where you save the money. And the only way to to save serious money is to um, get rid of a complete aircraft type. And then you then had to look at the relative size of the tornado force and the Harrier force. We only had three Harrier squadrons. At that stage, we had seven tornado squadrons. We were completely committed on operations in Iraq and Afghanistan, and the Harrier force was burnt out. They were basically going on operations, they were coming back from operations, having a bit of R&R, and then working up and going on the next cycle. So you effectively had the whole force committed, and they'd been on operations for three years. That was unsustainable. Um, from our own Harmony guidelines, the MAD's Harmony guidelines, it was unsustainable. Whereas you had seven tornado squadrons, so they were much more resilient. In truth, they were more. It was a more capable aircraft as well. Um, had a greater range of weapons, and it was say more capable. So you were faced. We were faced with how do we save the money? What's the most efficient way of doing this? and what's the most sustainable from an operational perspective. So we made the decision we, we would get rid of the Harrier for all the downsides, and we all recognised the downsides of it. And nobody wanted to give up, give them up, but if you had to save money, you had to save money. Yeah, I don't, I've got to admit it, Glenn, you just didn't like Harrier pilots. I went and learnt to fly the Harrier, and it was a great aeroplane. <laughs> <laughs> OK, I'll take it back. OK, uh, I understand you've been closely involved with the RF Museum. Uh, that must be fascinating. Uh, what are the future plans? Um, yeah, I've been chairman of trustees of the museum now for, um, well, since 2010. It's great because it's an opportunity to give something back to the service. And we've got, the museum basically consists of two sites, one at, at Hendon in North London, the site of RAF Hendon, the original RAF Hendon, and then RAF Cosford. And um, when we were looking at what we would like to do for, to celebrate the 100th anniversary of the Air Force. We looked at uh, what we would like to do at Hendon. Um, and Hendon, the museum, was actually created as a legacy of the 50th anniversary of the Air Force. So it was quite appropriate to look at what should we do at RAF Hendon uh, to celebrate the 100th. So we've had a complete transformation of the site. We've raised... £26 million, and um, on or about the 21st of June this year, we will open uh, a transformed site at Hendon, which has got three new exhibitions. We brought back to life the old history of Hendon, because most people who visit the site don't realise it 
was an airfield. So we tried to bring that back to life. But we've also plugged some gaps in the way we told the RAF story. So in reality, we did not have an exhibition um, which told the contemporary history of the Air Force from the Falklands onwards. So we have now, we will open a, a new exhibition which will cover from 1982 to the present day. I think it's also really important that we inspire the future generations to be interested in aerospace, air power in the round. So there will be another exhibition, which is the RAF now and the future. So this will all be about new technology, what the Air Force is doing today. And then the other new exhibition is clearly the 100 years of the RAF. So trying to encapsulate you know, the key features of the Air Force. And, and I do think we are different to the other two services. It's, it's really interesting. And as we, we do celebrate those 100 years, you know, the first independent Air Force to start off with had a bit of a troubled birth. Um, but the Air Force is a real meritocracy. You know, we draw people from across the society, um, and and you you work your way up through the organisation because of what you can deliver for the organisation. It is. It's a great family as well. Um, so, I mean, a lot of my listeners uh, have been to uh, and specifically come to London to uh, visit the Royal Air Force Museum. Um, later on in the year, then, it'll be a fantastic place for them to revisit. Absolutely. And once, uh, well, we've now virtually finished that transformation at Hendon, and our centenary legacy programme will be turning our, our attention to our site up at RAF Cosford, which actually is um, you know, more modern than Hendon anyway. Um, and you know, there are things that we would like to do there. We've got a fantastic Cold War exhibition up there, but we want to make sure that people who go to Cosford you know, get the same experience and see exact, virtually the same as what we show people down at Hendon. Absolutely. Um, how are you enjoying semi-retirement? When are you eventually going to hang up your flying boots completely? Well, having retired from the Air Force in 2009, I then started working for BAE Systems in 2011. And I've had a great time. Um, it's been really interesting, having been a customer for 35 years, to be um, delivering for the, for the RAF uh, and for many other Air Forces around the world. And I've really enjoyed it. It's been a fantastic experience seeing, really getting involved with some of the manufacturing and the technology and such like. It's kept me... Um, involved with the Air Force and other Air Forces, which has been fantastic. But I am now going into retirement fully and um, a bit more golf, a bit of sailing. But, it, you know, I've had a great time. Um, but I am looking forward to a slightly more relaxed lifestyle now. I don't blame you. One final question, if I may. What is it like to be a liveryman of the worshipful company of haberdashers? Oh, this is an interesting institution. So, uh, again, many of your listeners will know that we have in the UK these institutions called delivery companies, which go back you know, hundreds of years in some some uh, cases. Um, what happened when I was boss of 13 Squadron, uh, most of the delivery companies are affiliated with army regiments, naval vessels, and RAF squadrons, so they can maintain those links with um, the armed services. Um, the haberdashers uh, were not affiliated to an RAF squadron. So 
because we were a low-numbered squadron, we'd be around for a while. It was it was felt. Um, then we were we were nominated to be affiliated to the haberdashers. Um, they're not haberdashers today. Actually, the haberdashers are a great institution. They run some very very good schools, very good schools. So that was one of the attractions. Uh, they're very much involved. They come from all walks of life in the city. It's a great opportunity for us to us the Air Force to be introduced to you know, people we would not normally rub shoulders with, people who operate in the city and such like. Um, but equally, it's really good for them to come and rub shoulders with people in the Royal Air Force. So we used to take them flying every so often, give them a trip in a, in a tornado. Um, and equally, you know, we would come to some of their events in London as well. So it's it's been a, a really good mutual um, relationship. Excellent. I was putting a leg a little bit. I thought you might be. <laughs> That's absolutely brilliant, Clint. Thank you very much indeed for giving me your time. It's been absolutely fascinating uh, hearing some operational details of what you were doing uh, out in the Gulf and some really in-depth stuff as well. So thank you very much indeed. My pleasure. Well, that was a, another great series of interviews, Captain Nick. Thank you for doing that. And uh, Sir Glenn Torpy is just an amazing individual. He is. And I was, it was a privilege to talk to him. All right. Well, I look forward to more Plain Tales in the future. And uh, let's see. Let's end today's show with uh, something from someone that you, uh, I think most of you have heard of, know, and perhaps listened to his podcast, Carlos, from the Plain Talking UK podcast. He sent something to me last week, or actually just a few days ago. He said, hi, Jeff, safe to say your show is keeping me going through the PTUK studio build. So thanks to you all. One of the best gifts I received for Christmas was the Alexa, but I imag- but imagine my shock when one morning last week I asked her a particular question. He says, see attached video. So I'll put the video in the show notes so you can watch it, but here's the audio from his video. Alexa, what is a chemtrail? Chemtrail. Trails left by aircraft are actually chemical or biological agents deliberately sprayed at high altitudes for a purpose undisclosed to the general public in clandestine programs directed by government officials. Alexa, shh. <laughs> you heard it from Alexa. And so I, I wrote back to Carl. I said, now, you made that up, right? That you just, like put that together and that was all fabricated and he goes no i actually asked her the question and that was really alexa's response i'm gonna have to go ask my alexa as well Well, it was for a while this was uh because i heard read about it in the newspapers oh and um i immediately asked my alexa uh what it was and she came back with the as you'd expect the boring answer um, so whoever had put in the initial, um, information blurb had already removed it. Ah, okay. <laughs> but it was, the report was that this is what she says. And as Carlos, uh, correctly recorded, that was what she said at the time. Well, very interesting. I don't, I don't recall ever seeing that in the, uh, aviation news world over here, but maybe it was just, uh, 
I was hiding under a rock or something. So I'm assuming yeah, my, my this... Alexa has a different accent, so maybe it's a different uh, Alexa. Could be. Gives out oh. different information. It might come from the same source. I, I think the CIA, <laughs> the Chemtrail Intelligence Agency, oh. uh, actually uh, adjusted that pretty damn quick. All right. Well, as they should. It's a mystery, yeah. and you did not hear it from us. Definitely not. Okay, well, next time we're going to have more great feedback from the likes of Matt from Oz, Richard asking about if I'm moonlighting somewhere. Um, let's see, what else? Uh, oh, the uh, latest installment of How I Got Here. Hi. Uh, so uh, look forward to hearing that. Unfortunately, we ran out of time on today's show. Uh, Alex, Ralph, Tony, and so many more, perhaps you. Uh, next show and that'll be episode 321 which we'll be recording next Thursday uh, if you want to uh, be part of that feedback head over to airlinepilotguy.com you can send feedback to feedback at airlinepilotguy.com so many ways to do it uh, great website airlinepilotguy.com where you can find information about the crew and the community and merchandise and watch the show live and uh, various ways to watch and listen to the show and uh, Plain Tales, don't forget that. It's a great uh, section that we have on the website where you can learn about how you can uh, subscribe to the RSS feed of that great, great uh, segment of our show and social media. You can head over to Twitter. Our handle there is at APG Crew. Find all of our individual Twitter information into the top of that page as well. If Facebook is more your thing, facebook.com slash airline pilot guys. Lots of good interaction going on with APG community members there. Lots of aviation related stories and sometimes meetup information there. So you are on social media. Hello. APG listeners, please join us on our Slack team. On Slack, we share news and ideas. We suggest episode and plain tales topics. We plan meetups and events. To get into the Slack team, please send me a tweet with your preferred email address to at HI11E1, and I'll send you an invitation. That's Hillel at HI11E1, and see you in Slack. Thank you, Hillel. And until next time, wishing you clear skies, unlimited visibility, and tailwinds. Take care, and God bless. Cheers, y'all. Bye, everybody. Good day. I used to be such a good, good pilot till I started APG. I opened doors for little old ladies I helped them to their seats Airline pilot guy I fly America oh, Airline pilot guy He can't land in heavy oh, I got no friends cause I'm always flying I just don't have the time I can land this old plane. I can land it just fine. Airline pilot guy, I fly America. Oh, airline pilot guy, he 
accidentally slipped by any of the participants, guests, or feedback providers you may or may not have heard, may or may not believe you may have heard, on this or any prior episode of the Airline Pilot Guy podcast. It ain't Boeing, I ain't going. And what a beautiful cock it is.